Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, you know, I'm just a box of fluffy ducks. I've never really understood that, but I do. You need me to explain that to you? Sure. Okay, have you ever seen it? Okay, you know what a box is, right? Yep. You know what a duck is? One of the gimmicks that go inside the box. Well, yeah, and they're fluffy, and if you have, I mean, what is better than a little fluffy duck? Come on, trip, 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 you little fluffy duck. And if you had an entire box of fluffy ducks, how much better could it get? Well, those ducks are going to shit a lot. I mean, that's the way my brain works. Then they'd be happy. Well, are you are you happy when you shit? Because we found out this week yes. with Tony Schiavone that uh, he really enjoys shitting. I I enjoy a good one, you know, when when it's good and it's cleansing and what have you. Get total evacuation with my. I, I shouldn't plug Squatty Potty because they're not a sponsor. But I got my little Squatty Potty, and then I got my little butt washer there, my bidet, and it's all good. Oh, I love that we're we're talking about complete evacuations now, and it's not like <laughs> we're like, we're like a minute into the show and we're already doing this. This is going to be an interesting show. Uh, let's stop plugging stuff for a minute and let's talk about last week's episode, No Way Out, nineteen ninety eight. It was fascinating to watch these two shows sort of a week apart for ninety eight and oh three, which is what we're talking about today. Of course, No Way Out oh three. But I got a ton of great feedback about No Way Out 98. So many people were getting back into wrestling here, and there's so much going on with Mike Tyson, Shawn Michaels, and on down the card. But the thing everybody wants to hear more about is who else was considered besides Savio Vega. You know, we we mentioned last week that maybe Sid was considered. Was there anyone else seriously considered? Because you guys teased it all night, that who will it be? It could be a big surprise. And then, womp, 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 Savio Vega. Well, uh, outside, other than Sid, there really wasn't anybody considered. And there were people from within, like Ken Shamrock and different people like that, to be a part of that. Do you go to the nation? What do you do from within? And then it was, you know what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put Savio in that slot because he's a great talent. He's going to deliver in the ring. He will deliver. He's not going to disappoint anybody. And it, it stopped being about that big surprise. So it, it was. You guys favored ring work and match quality above star power. And I think that makes sense because at this point, the fucking show's been sold out for two weeks. So if you were on the fence about buying the pay-per-view, I mean, you're probably not. Either you're going to buy it to see Stone Cold or you're not. It's not right. like a new name is going to. So why add a new line item expense when you've already sold everything you can sell? And then what do you do with them? And, and depending upon the caliber of that talent, you know, what exactly do you do with it? And you just said it. The talent was already in the match and the talent was already on the card itself that anybody else wasn't going to add that much to it. And Savio was able to at least add the credibility in the ring and make sure that the match itself, people weren't disappointed. Well, let's get to uh, the matter at hand, man. I'm excited about this. No Way Out 2003. Uh, today is the 15-year anniversary of this show. It went down on February 23rd, 2003 from the Bell Center in Montreal, Canada. Of course, this is the home of the famous Montreal Screwjob. It drew about 15,000 folks, and Wade Keller reported that over 500,000 people actually tuned in and bought this pay-per-view 
and it was projected to be the highest company pay-per-view since WrestleMania 18. So a lot of interest at this time. And what a fucking card we're going to cover today. Why do you think this pay-per-view was so successful, Bruce? A combination of things. It was the return of Hulk Hogan. It was the return of Stone Cold Steve Austin. There was, we had a lot of great stories going on and I, I kind of wish there, there are times when you and I talk and we talk off air about wrestling and things and, and it gets to the point where I wanted to say the other day, I said, man, we, we should just stop talking and do this on the podcast because you and I were talking about this, this card and this pay-per-view event and what a difference five years made in the overall presentation of the business the wrestling product everything and everybody always talks about the attitude era and everybody oh god i long for the attitude era i long for this i long for that this card in 2003 blew away no way out 1998 my opinion like just there was no comparison and it's weird to watch them sort of back to back like we did because you know in the undercard of that 98 show you've got like the quebecers taking on the godwins no disrespect to that match but your tag match here is kane and rvd taking on william regal and lance storm as far as in-ring wrestling goes holy shit there's no comparison i mean almost everything on this feels like it could have been a main event a few years prior or a few years after it's such a stacked card but yeah that observation the other day was man people just look back at the monday night wars with like rose colored glasses and i think some of that was really just the freedom of choice where people thought well i don't know if i really want to watch this let me see what's going on on the other channel so it felt like you always had some sort of main event program on the other channel but if you look at these shows almost in a vacuum just as a one-off Man, there's just no comparison. This card is maybe the most stacked roster of all time. I mean, that's got to be the case, right? Yes, it was. And there were so many big things happening and so much talent coming through at the time. Everybody had a story and everything was larger than life. We say it. We joke about it. A main event anywhere in the world. Truly, when you look at this show, these could have been main events. Anywhere at any time and, and it's some period in the wrestling business. So it was, it was good storytelling and it was uh, a, a time that I kind of forgot about until I went back and watched it and went, damn, that's pretty good stuff. No, totally. And, and this is such a big show for you guys. We're coming off the Royal Rumble. We've got Hulk Hogan and The Rock here in a rematch from maybe one of the most memorable WrestleMania matches of all time. Steve Austin is returning to the ring after he left the company in the summer of 02. Uh, just really big stuff. Let's go ahead and sort of set the stage, though. The working plan, according to Wade Keller, was that if the Goldberg negotiations resulted in a deal, that Goldberg would face The Rock at WrestleMania. And once that was set, everything else would fall into place like this. Hulk Hogan was take on The Rock. Vince McMahon would take on Hulk Hogan. Steve Austin would take on Triple H. And there was a lot of sort of rumor and innuendo that those guys didn't get along and they had major political differences, but they both recognized that that's probably the biggest match they could have been involved in. Do you remember there being talk of Goldberg being in time, coming in in time for this WrestleMania show? Of course, we know 
he would wind up coming in the night after WrestleMania, and he winds up wrestling The Rock at Backlash. In hindsight, it would have been a much bigger deal to have The Rock, or maybe not The Rock. It would have been a bigger deal for Goldberg's first pay-per-view to be at WrestleMania, would it not? No, it wouldn't. And, and, and this is part of my issue with the dirt sheet guys. When they write the working plan is this, they are total 100% speculation. They're hearing rumblings of things and, and they're saying what they think should or would happen based on, on what they think. Goldberg was never considered for WrestleMania. Yes, we, we were negotiating with Bill to come in. The thing with Bill, and we'll get into it when we eventually do a Bill Goldberg uh, podcast, but the thing with Bill and with Vince was, Vince, we had Goldberg for one year. To bring Bill in, you wanted to be able to build him up for that year, hopefully, and get him into a program. And, again looking at the bright side of things, extend that to another year and or two, but build Goldberg for that year and get the most out of him for that build for WrestleMania. If you've only got a couple of weeks to build Goldberg for WrestleMania, it wasn't enough time to get enough bang for your buck, and then you've got him for a whole year, and you're not going to get him at the next WrestleMania. So there was never an intent to bring him in here. That was all speculation on everybody else. The idea was right after the hottest WrestleMania, you come right off of WrestleMania where viewers are high for that next Raw, that's when you bring Goldberg in because you've got a lot of people interested in the product. Now let's take it to the next step and introduce a new guy on free TV to a larger audience. Here's where these rumor and innuendos get started. Are you ready for this? I can't wait. Quote, Rock told an extra on the movie set of Hell Dorado that he's going to oh, wrestle well, that's credible. Hulk Hogan at No Way Out and Goldberg at WrestleMania and then quit wrestling until Hollywood doesn't want him anymore. And Rock said this during a conversation with a person only identified as Jake T. Icon in a one wrestling report last weekend. Um... Allegedly, yeah, I know Jake. Jake. Jake's a good guy, man. Very credible. Allegedly, Rock wanted to wrestle Goldberg in Goldberg's first WWE match, and everybody seemed okay with that. But allegedly, Goldberg and the WWE are sort of far apart on money. Do you remember hearing this rumor of Rock telling an extra on a movie set? And can you address what, what the Rock's interest in Goldberg's first match was? Oh, yeah, sure. I, I was there when uh, we, we were all hanging out there in Hell Dorado when uh, we called him Jake T. And Rock was telling him all about this shit. It, it's silly. I will say this. Rock is was instrumental in bringing Bill Goldberg into the WWE. He helped broker the deal and talked to Bill and really helped massage that deal into getting made. So that, that part is definitely true that rock was instrumental in bringing Goldberg in, uh, the rest of it. I, I don't even know how the hell you, you, you distinguish that kind of shit with an answer because it's just, it's such, such horse shit made up from somebody that's, that's an extra on a set. Who's 
Jake T. Icon, that's his name? Yep. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that works. Seems legit to me. It, it seems legit to me, too. I mean, you got a point there. I mean, Mr. Icon, um, yeah. So around this time, it also comes out that The Rock was probably going to land the lead role in the remake of the movie Walking Tall, which, when he actually lands the role, becomes a big deal. And it actually is featured on CNN's news ticker. So all of a sudden, The Rock is getting a lot of momentum Internally, do you remember there being a conversation about when you guys needed to start figuring the rock out of your full-time plans? Like, hey, we're losing him. He's going to Hollywood. Was there a concern that he's going to quit wrestling completely at this point? We knew that he was going and doing a lot more Hollywood. This was during a time Rock and I had one of our first big fights about his Hollywood career because it pissed me off that he was going to play Buford Pusser because I am one of the biggest Walking Tall fans ever and a Buford Pusser historian and fan, and, and I love the story Walking Tall. And he started telling me about how they were going to change it, and it's based on and this. And I'm like, you can't do that. No, you can't change Buford Pusser's story. And he says, no, Bruce, it's based on. And we got this uh, wonderful argument about just fucking with perfection. And that is the walking tall story. But to answer your question, yeah, we, we kind of knew the writing was on the wall. He was getting over. He was being put in. He was a leading man and he was drawing in the movies as well. So we knew we were going to lose him. Wade Keller wrote that Steve Austin, I'll just read it here. Steve Austin must come away from the next three months stronger than ever. To do that, he would score pinfall wins over Bill Goldberg and Hulk Hogan, if not also Triple H and The Rock. WWE must also get through the next few months, making sure that Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar seem to be every bit as big of a star as The Rock, Hulk Hogan, Undertaker, Kevin Nash, Shawn Michaels, and Goldberg. Triple H has the power to look out for himself, and he surely will. I find that remark interesting because even Wade Keller's own rumor and innuendo and speculation is that if Goldberg isn't signed, then Austin's probably going to take on The Rock. And that leaves Hunter without an obvious foe. So get the chapstick out here, Bruce. Was Hunter jockeying for a WrestleMania match that you remember at this point? Like what was, what was he angling for? Well, I don't know that he's jockeying for anything because we had the Rock Austin match. That's what we were building to. And then we were building to, uh, on the other side, on the SmackDown side, Kurt and Brock. And right in the middle there was Vincent Hogan. And unfortunately, storyline-wise, Triple H, because with uh, Steiner, it wasn't something that we were going to get three out of with Scott. So unfortunately, I was kind of left out in the cold. But it wasn't Hunter wasn't jockeying for anything at this point. There just wasn't really anything there in the big picture at this time getting him to WrestleMania. So you have to look at that story for WrestleMania to be a launching pad for the next summer instead of an ending. Instead of being an ending and a blow-off, it had to be a beginning, and that's the price you pay sometimes. The idea being that WrestleMania isn't always the beginning, but it is if you don't have a hot feud right then. Then it's time to start another one. Right. And it, it's you got all those eyeballs, so you just try something new if you don't have something to blow off. So 
let's talk about Scott Steiner. And we've, we've talked about this a lot on our Steiner Brothers episode. But he has a less than awesome performance at the Royal Rumble. We're going to get into the rematch here. Did you guys already knew going into this match that there's not going to be a trilogy. It's not going to be Scott Steiner and Hunter at WrestleMania, right? Yes, we did. We did. It wasn't going to happen. And Scott's physical uh, abilities, just his better days were behind him at this point. So we weren't going to get three out of it. And we we had to move on. We had to cut bait and we had to do something else. Let's talk about Goldberg a minute before we move on from him. Uh, Wade Keller would report WWE is asking for up to 10 dates from Goldberg per month and basic, basically making him a full-time attraction while Goldberg is thinking the best deal for him would be working twice for two huge paydays. Goldberg is also dictating who he will and won't job to with Triple H and Brock Lesnar being the two he won't job for. WWE is looking at booking Goldberg and Rock at WrestleMania and then Goldberg and Hulk Hogan at the following pay-per-view followed by Goldberg versus Steve Austin, Kurt Angle, Undertaker, and Kevin Nash in subsequent months. Obviously, this would have been big business, especially (laughs) Austin Goldberg. Do you remember there being a conversation with Goldberg about how many dates he would work? That's interesting. But what's more interesting is who I won't lose to. Well, first of all, uh, Bill Goldberg, and I'll say Hulk Hogan, everybody else, Having that conversation with Vince is something that's just not going to happen. And Vince wasn't interested if if he started off a conversation with people he's not going to work with or people he's not going to lose to in a fictional environment. It ain't going to happen. And that's a that's a conversation ender right there. Vince was always looking at, and unfortunately, Bill put himself in this position because Bill was not interested in doing anything longer than one year. Well, in in doing that, you can't have Goldberg just come in, squash everybody for a year, roll through everybody, be undefeated, beat everybody in his path, then what? Then he's gone? What What does that do for the company? What does that do for anybody else? That's not good business. So Vince was looking at being able to bring Bill in, make him vulnerable, give him some more personality. You know, Bill, you're going to have to sell. You're going to have to work matches. You're going to have to do more than you did before. And we're going to have to basically reestablish Bill Goldberg here to this audience, and we need more from you than a 30-second squash match and a couple of dates a month. We need you to work. We we need you for TVs and we need you for house shows. This is an attraction if we're going to invest the time, TV time on you. So it, it was. Whenever I hear the, these things like that, that it, that's somebody just stirring shit. And say, oh, I heard Goldberg said he's not going to lose to to uh, Brock. Yep, not going to do it. That ain't going to happen. That's bullshit. Well, that's what we're talking about because that's what was in the dirt sheets. Let's switch gears here. Uh, the Tough Enough finale comes out on January 23rd and draws a strong 2.6 rating. We see Matt Capitelli and John Hennigan announced as the winners. And, of course, we remember Matt as the student who got roughed up by Bob Holly. Um, chat me up. This is a, a pretty memorable Tough Enough episode. We've had some requests for Tough Enough over the years. What can you tell us about the Bob Holly incident that 
people still talk about to this day. Well, Bob took it as being the old veteran, and that was the way of the business back in the day, that if you had an up-and-comer, that there was always that old veteran that would beat the hell out of them. It toughens them up. You know, they respect the business then. And with cameras and everything there, I think Bob kind of took it upon himself to show people, hey, first of all, this is a tough business. Um, I always did get tickled over the defense of that wrestling is less than 100% legitimate because it always, you know, it's always been a work and it always will be a work for it to succeed. But there were those of us, and I'm guilty as charged as well. You know, you would always want to go above and beyond to protect the business. And that's what Bob was doing uh, for the cameras to show everybody, hey, this kid in Capitelli was a tough kid that took it. And I think that that's the reason that he was chosen. And that's the reason that they did it to Capitelli was that he was tough enough to do it. But it's kind of what it's, it's like uh, the, the Andersons used to make everybody run the steps and beat them with a stick is they would run the steps in the old auditorium there in the Carolinas and make them do, you know, 10,000 Hindu squats and all this other shit. Um, used to have trainers that used to like to see people run the ropes for an hour. Who's going to run the ropes for an hour in a match? Yes, you need to be conditioned. Yes, you have, but ring conditioning is different than any other kind of conditioning. Uh, Ric Flair would do 10,000 Hindu squats a day, every day. Ric Flair would go out and do cardio that was inhuman. Then he would go and wrestle a 60 minute match every single night. His conditioning, I would put him against anybody in the world as far as conditioning and wrestlers have to condition themselves in a certain way. But by beating someone up and by, you know, taking liberties with people sometimes, I don't think is right. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. What's the what's the office say about an incident like that with Bob? Well, again, I think Capitelli, everybody was in on it, and it was something done for the cameras. But I understand that. But I'm saying, is Vince think that's a good thing to put out there to be representative of his company, or is he worried about how that may look? At the time, I don't even know that Vince was aware of it per se, other than it was good television and it was somebody, you know, the guy Bob was stiff with somebody. And that's, that's how it would be described. The ones that blew it all up were the people outside of the business. Right. That blew it up. Not people inside the business. When did you guys know that Johnny Nitro, John Morrison was going to be something special? I'll tell you when I knew was, um, there was a period where, uh, Nitro and the Miz were a tag team. And they used to go, they both lived in California, in LA, and they used to, on their days off, take a camera and they would shoot these little mini movies and these segments. 
and they would put them out on, on this thing called the Internet. Nobody knew what the hell they were doing, but they got a following, kind of like Zack Ryder did. Okay, he, he did his own stuff. Nobody was paying attention to him. And all of a sudden, the son of a bitch has this huge following by being himself and doing what he thought he should do to get over. Kind of like in the old days, you got yourself over. Well, uh, Johnny Nitro and The Miz were doing this stuff. And, of course, it gets over. People are talking about it. Well, now Vince wants to control it. In Vince's um, effort to control it, Vince put me in charge of it. And I looked at these guys. They're young kids. They're doing stuff I didn't understand. And I said, you know what? You guys do your stuff. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm not going to edit it. And let's see what happens. If it continues to get over, I'll take the heat for it. And it did. And that's when I knew watching the work ethic that Hennigan and Miz both had that nobody was going to stop them, no matter what. That they were destined to fight and do what they had to do to be a success in the business. Let's talk a little bit about um, the UPN deal because at this point it looks like UPN is going to be shutting down. And when that happens, what's going to happen for SmackDown? And Keller writes, two weeks ago, we reported that WWE officials were not concerned about the status of UPN since they had other options. And the main quote-unquote other option is moving to Fox. As apparently, Vince had even already had a lot of talks with Fox executives. Of course, as we know, Fox didn't wind up landing SmackDown. How close did this get to being a reality? Because we're hearing a lot about Fox these days in the WWE as well. Well, we were talking to everybody, and Fox was definitely a competitor, and they were in the hunt. We were talking about, we were talking to Viacom on a bigger scale of things and some of the other properties that they were a part of, uh, specifically on cable, where we might have a little more leeway to do some things. But Vince was interested in, in that broadcast, and that's what UPN was. It was broadcast television. It wasn't a cable cast. So he wanted to maintain a broadcast position there. Um, we talked to him. We talked to a lot of people, though, and Fox was probably the one that most people reported and talked about, I guess. Well, it, it's it's something that um, has lots of tentacles on it, of course, because Fox was swooping in and picking up a lot of these stations, and if they just canceled the contracts now that they owned them with UPN – it feels a little bit like an old wrestling territory takeover. In the end, do you think that Vince still has good ties or a good relationship with Fox? I mean, it feels like he's sort of been flirting with them for a long time. Why do you think in all these years hasn't it ever been the go-to for Raw or SmackDown? Well, Vince has a good relationship with Rupert Murdoch, and they they always have. And they've, they've always kind of like is flirting is probably the best way to describe it because they've always flirted back and forth as to, you know, what if and what could be. So it's always been an option, but the relationship with Universal and USA Network, um, that, you know, they, they turned it around, but you never know with. WWE's contracts coming up, television contracts coming up very soon. And the addition of this XFL thing, 
there may be a lot of doors that are opening, and Fox could be very seriously in the hunt once again. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, something that we haven't really talked about a lot here, and it's the wrongful death suit with uh, Owen Hart. This has got to be something that was talked about in the office, and I know you know this is all sort of water under the bridge and something we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but it winds up being a significant judgment. And the WWE's attorney, Jerry McDevitt, told the star that the judge's order contained, quote, some of the strongest statements I've seen in my 22 years of practice about the manner in which this case was handled. And another attorney for the WWE says, our objective is to hold accountable all the entities responsible for the accident. We have believed from day one that Lumar bears a far greater degree of responsibility for this accident than does the WWE. Obviously, Lumar is the company who made the, the trigger latch shackle that failed, and it was allegedly supposed to be used for marine equipment, not for this. How big of a, a deal was this internally? I mean, this is years years later, but still, you know, an $18 million settlement. It's a big deal. Well, it was a big deal, but I'll, I'll tell you from a from a company standpoint and during this during this time i was fortunate that i wasn't in the office all the time and i was living in houston and just coming in periodically and making all the tvs however things like this in in a big court case like this you don't discuss it a lot because frankly you don't want to be put on the stand and you don't want to go up and you don't want to have to testify and the lawyers and everybody involved in it was very careful not to discuss a lot with anybody that wasn't directly involved in it. So it wasn't, it wasn't something that was openly discussed and it wasn't something that was a topic of conversation on the plane or anything else. It was okay. Let the courts and let everybody that's involved in the case, let them testify and talk about it where they need to talk about it. Because last thing you needed was a bunch of rumor innuendo and bullshit going on that muddies it all up. Well, let's talk about, you know, the allegation here briefly, because I know that in a big settlement like this, everybody's looking for a big payday. And the Missouri judge is saying that the hearts and or their lawyers, probably the latter, quote, engaged in fraud, collusion, and or torturous conduct. And, of course, Gary Robb, the attorney for the Hearts, is denying any wrongdoing and says, no, the WWE is solely responsible. And I've always found that to be, I don't know, hard to swallow. Like, the WWE, sure, they probably had a piece of the blame here. But realistically, the folks who rigged him up and the people who made the latch, that's the situation, right? I mean... But it doesn't feel like they have the deep pockets. So if you're an attorney, you go after WWE because they've got the big checkbook, right? I I don't even know if it was that, and it's pure speculation on my part, but I think it was just more of a personal feeling that I don't want you to pay. I want you to pay. I see. And I think that at this time it was more – it was probably more of that feeling and more of – Okay, they may have been responsible, but I, I want it to come from them. Well, 
I hate that that's the way it is. And we get lots of questions about why isn't Owen Hart in the Hall of Fame? Well, listen to the full podcast on Owen Hart, but there's your answer. Um, over the last several months, it's written in the torch, road agent Johnny Ace has been increasingly involved with talent-related matters. Uh, he worked closely with Eric Bischoff, of course, and was going to be a major player in world championship wrestling had the whole fusion purchase happened. Uh, and eventually, I guess, he earned the confidence of both Stephanie and Triple H. And JR publicly welcomed the assistance of Johnny Ace. And uh, I've always been curious how his rise to prominence happened in the WWE. I don't know that we'll ever do a Johnny Ace episode, but how does that happen? Where he goes from a guy kind of brought over with the acquisition of WCW, and now he's in talent relations and gaining some stroke. I I, I, la- I got I to laugh when you say, you know, gaining the confidence of Stephanie and Triple H. Triple H was not a part of the office, and Triple H, other than being a talent, didn't have a whole lot of say in anything other than his own programs that he gave input and, and things, too. So he wasn't officially in the office or anything. I don't even know if they were married at that point. However, um, the the other part that makes me laugh is I would have to say, in this time frame, <laughs> Triple H is not a big, big fan of, of Laurinaitis, uh, one way or the other, uh, yay or nay. But the people that were really pushing to bring him in, JR needed help in talent relations. I had moved. I had gone over to creative full time. I'm living in Texas. JR needed help. And, John had been doing that role for WCW before we bought WCW and John had been on the road. We brought him in as one of the people and John did a good job on the road as talent. You know, we bust Lauren balls all the time. Um, yeah, I, I have to say from experience, the single worst job in the company is talent relations. It is a heat magnet. No matter what you do, you're a dumbass and you're wrong and everything gets put on you. So as much as, you know, I like to make fun of Johnny and so on and so forth, he did do a good job and he did what he needed to do. It's a heat position. It sucks. Um, so he was somebody that we brought in to come in and, and help JR. And I was probably pushing for it. JR was definitely pushing for it. He needed help. And Jim was looking to kind of have the same exit strategy I had to move back to Oklahoma and have a satellite office, come in and do commentary on Monday Night Raw, and eventually move those responsibilities to somebody else. Well, maybe we'll get to talk a little bit more about Johnny Ace in the future. Let's talk a little bit about Nathan Jones. I did like Vince's arms. It comes out in an Australian newspaper that uh, this dude had quite the checkered past. He was in jail for armed robbery that he did back in 89. And while he was in prison, he gained a little bit of a reputation. And I can't believe this is real. But allegedly, ripping cell doors off their hinges and snapping uh, handcuffs. And it once took... 10 prison guards to restrain him when he went berserk. Um, and there's a little bit of a political scandal that they often used gas on him to subdue him because they couldn't do it any other way. So 
He starts to get a little bit of buzz for himself, and he tries to break into Hollywood in 95, but everybody finds out about his visa being revoked uh, because of his violent past and in his admitted history of steroid abuse. And uh, I guess maybe the weirdest thing about the steroid thing, and this is coming from the torch, allegedly he had one of his mammary glands surgically removed because it began producing milk which Wade Keller says is caused from steroid abuse. And we're talking about all this silly shit because Nathan Jones has started to work matches uh, over the house shows with Matt Hardy. And they're not awesome. But he's being pushed hard on TV because he's got this great rep and this great look. What can you tell us about these rumor and innuendos about uh, Nathan Jones and how much did Vince love every fucking bit of it? Well, I, I mean, that, not a lot of rumor and innuendo. It's a fact, man. He did he did some hard time in Australia and had quite the reputation for being a badass over there. He had tried his hand in MMA and some different things. He came to us through Rick Bassman in Los Angeles, and we've talked about Rick from time to time. He big, good-looking bastard. He was a prototype for guys that Vince liked, big massive and crazy. Um, plus you add in to that unpredictable side of the, the prison story, man, that's great television. God, it took 10 guards to subdue him. And he only gave in because he was hungry. He was hungry for chocolate, but, um, he couldn't get it from his own because that would probably be anyway, the memory gland thing. i I have no idea. I've seen different guys that maybe were taking a little bit too much shit. Maybe that happened to Wade Keller when he was on the sauce and his mammary glands produced milk. I don't know, but I've seen it before. I've never known anyone to, to take their glands out, but who did you see? I've seen a few titties lactate in my day. Who did you, uh, who did you see? Um, ah, God, you have to ask. Uh, it was, it was a developmental guy. I, I can picture him and I can't think of his damn name. Oh, Bruce. I can't think of his name. He was, I remember he'd been through, he'd been through Memphis. He'd been through, uh, OVW. An independent guy. And I remember just sitting there at the ring one day and looking down and going, are his tits leaking? What the hell? And I asked him, he goes, yeah, man. He goes, it's the damnedest thing. He says, you know, and I said, you're fucking lactating. And yeah, God, I'm, I'll think of it before the end of the show. Yeah. We'll be in the middle of a story and you'll just yell it out, which will be fun. Who are some of the guys that Vince thought Nathan Jones could draw money with that did Vince ever see a talent like a Nathan Jones and say, God damn, imagine oh, God. him with Undertaker, big show, all the big guys. You know, you looking at you look at that and you look at the story and you automatically see, you know, monster Hulk Hogan. Good God. You know, he would have been perfect in the old days to bring in and work with Hogan. Is a big nasty heel and then eventually get him over as a baby face for a sympathetic guy that the ten guards picked on. <laughs> Forget about whatever the hell he was in prison for. Well, love him. And his juicy nipples. God. 
I can't wait to talk about this. This was in the torch. Quote, the story continues to spread that Paul Heyman and Brian Gewertz were suspended one week after getting into a physical altercation. Heyman was allowed to continue to do his work as an on-air character while Brian was sent home. Heyman has been telling others that while he and Brian are known for having verbal fights, there was never a physical altercation between the two. What happened? Paul said there was never a physical altercation between the two? Yes. Now, I'm not saying Paul said that. I'm saying Wade said Paul said that. Boy, well, Wade said that Paul said that so-and-so said that, yeah. Um, I was in the room, and let's, let me say this. There was no, there were no fists thrown. Um, have you ever seen, okay, you ever see the movie Revenge of the Nerds? Yeah. Okay, imagine the main nerd got in a pinch fight with Booger. And that's kind of what it was by the time I, I didn't even notice what the hell was going on. They, they got into a verbal argument and Heyman stormed around the room and Brian didn't back down. <laughs> Brian bowed up to him and didn't back down. I don't know what Paul thought would happen when he came, was going to come across the room to confront Brian, but I don't think that he expected Brian to not sell it. And Brian just kind of bowed up to him. And one of the writers, uh, Pete Doyle, got in between them. But I don't think, you know, bless Pete for getting in there. I, I don't think that anybody else would have gotten in between them. Like, okay, let's just watch and see what happens. Um, I will say this, in my opinion, I felt Paul was completely in the wrong. But just silly silliness that got blown out of proportion in the writer's room. Oh, I love stories like that. Uh, here's I will tell you, good sir, you will not disparage my little protege. I will allow him to tell any idea that he has. And that's a good idea, my young man. And Brian just said, yeah, but it was funny. You will not say his idea is funny, sir. Um, and and, and I, 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 that that was it. That was it. And, and Paul blew it way out of proportion and then it got blown way out of proportion beyond that. But it was just silliness, absolute silliness. And, and I always called it the pinch fight. Well, here's something pinchable. Tori Wilson was in the uh, Playboy magazine and on the cover that was supposed to be released on March 28th. It's technically the May issue, but they planned the release on March 28th because it's just a couple of days prior to WrestleMania and they're hopeful that they would pass the $1.1 million sales mark, which is how many issues Raina Marrow delivered a few years prior to this. How did this come to be? You guys had a pretty good relationship with Playboy. What do you remember about Tori Wilson's issue and how that relationship was? It was awesome. Uh, I loved being able to go out and shoot vignettes at the Playboy Mansion and being able to uh, hang around and get the get the unofficial tour of the mansion and going to see all the nooks and crannies, which was a lot of fun. But, but Tori man was red hot, absolutely gorgeous. And the, the pictures that she had in playboy did well. I don't remember if it actually beat Rena's, but it did very well for him. They were really happy with Tori and she was one of Hugh's favorite. 
Actually, his friends call him Hef. Uh, which part of the Playboy Mansion did you enjoy seeing? My favorite part of the Playboy Mansion? I thought you said the nooks and crannies. Or- the nooks and crannies of the... Well, there's... Since I guess it's, it's they're going to redo it now. There was a room in off of the game room that was the floor was basically a bed. And so there, there was a bed, but it was like floor level. So everything was on the floor level and all of the rooms had entrances and exits. So it wasn't just like one door in and one door out. They were all, they had entrances and they had exits. Um, it was a neat place. It was a really, really neat place, to say the least. I wish I could have been there in the heyday. Well, um, I think everybody wishes they were there during the heyday, right? You know. Triple H is scheduled to miss uh, some time here because he had a hematoma, which is basically a big blood buildup in his left quadricep, the same muscle he had surgically repaired a couple of years prior, and he had just recovered from this in his right quad when he then gets it again in his left quad, this time on the January 27th Raw main event. And according to the website, he suffered the injury when Rob Van Dam gave him a high knee during the main event. His elbow collided with Hunter's left thigh. And obviously this isn't like a career-threatening injury, but it is something that... um slows you down and is going to cause you to miss a little bit of action. Triple H got his first one back in uh, 1999 when Vince McMahon hit him with a pipe during their match at Armageddon. <laughs> uh, what do you remember about a hematoma and it taking guys out of action? Cause it's not something we talk about a lot in wrestling. Well, it just, it's an accident and it's something that you have to be really careful with because you don't want blood clots and you don't want any of that stuff to go to your heart. So you have to, you got to lay off, man. You got to take care of it. So it wasn't, it's not like really being, uh, injury prone, but it's, it's an accident, kind of one of those freak accidents that'll happen and creep up on you. And if you don't take care of it, it could, and it could fuck you up and be career ending if you don't take care of it. Let's talk a little bit more about, um, Johnny Ace. I don't know what the obsession Wade Keller has. With Johnny Ace here, but he goes out of his way as we, we march towards No Way Out 2003 to write, Johnny Ace is described in many circles as a yes man for Stephanie McMahon and Triple H, and this has led to accusations from others in management that Ace is going against his own beliefs in the hopes that he'll gain more power from Stephanie. Quote, he's Stephanie's guy right now. You know, you clearly were not Stephanie's guy, but do you remember guys maybe trying to position themselves to be seen as Stephanie's guy. Triple H. Uh, <laughs> well, here's what I mean. Like it's, it's no secret that Michael PSAs has a relationship with Stephanie. Like they're, they're friendly. She believes in him. She is a Michael PSAs fan and he's our buddy. So I don't mind sharing that. I mean, but that's out there. He even thanks her in his hall of fame speech specifically was that, the same take on Johnny Ace and, and who else may have been painted with that same brush? Well, at, the, at this time, you know, for Johnny, Johnny was working closely with Stephanie because Stephanie was the head of creative. So it wasn't, 
I don't know that Stephanie had her guys, especially at this time. It was just the position that Johnny was in and having to work with Stephanie from a talent relations point of view and work with the creative. That that was Johnny's liaison and vice versa. Um, Johnny still answered to Vince. And frankly, for a long time, and especially at this period in time, he was still answering. Johnny was still answering to Jr. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there in the office and privy to to any of their meetings or anything like that. But I can see where people would say, "Oh, hey, Johnny's kissing up to Steph," because Steph was head of the department. So can I tell you that blouse looks really nice today, Stephanie? I really like it. It's not as nice as your dad's arms, but I, I like that shade of pink. You know. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, Bite This. And we've touched on this briefly before on, I believe it was the Matt Hardy Edge Lita episode. Bite This, of course, is when WWE decided, hey, we're going to do our own little internet radio video thing. And uh, just sort of take control of that for a little bit. Instead of everybody else doing it, we're going to do it. Well, during an appearance uh, that Batista had, all of a sudden, Devon Edge and Triple H interrupt him. And Batista gets on the floor, does a push-up, and says, I'm Devon's bitch. And then after the push-up, joked, it sucks being a rookie, no matter how big you are. Man, don't ever make a bet with a veteran. Well, it could be worse. I could be in wrestler's court. This is one of the first times that fans hear about wrestler's court, especially on a WWE promoted thing like bite this. What do you remember about, you know, bite this and what was allowed? What wasn't allowed? What involvement Vince had who helped produce it? How were those bite this pieces of business put together? Vince had such little involvement in things like Bite This, especially in the infancies of, of WWF, WWE.com. They were trying out new things, and they were trying to give insider things. And, and during this time, it was probably Shane who had a lot to do with Bite This and so on and so forth. So they had a lot of leeway, and he wanted guys to give behind the scenes and inside information and go out of character a little bit. So from time to time, you, you might get something like that. And Dave, being a rookie at the time, not really knowing yay or nay, um, did what did what he did and, and commented on it. So it, it just kind of gave a peek behind the scenes. And for those who saw it, they got a little nugget that uh, maybe they shouldn't have. Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff was the original plan for WrestleMania before they went with Vince and Hulk Hogan. According to the when? Forge, do you remember that being the case? Was Bischoff McMahon ever discussed for WrestleMania? No, it wasn't. Vince had no desire to have that match with Eric. That was something that we had pitched. Um, God, I'll, I'll go back 2000, 2001, 2002, that we had pitched early on to do uh, Bischoff and, and McMahon, and Vince never had any interest in it. Didn't want to do it. Had no desire to do it. So no, it, it, it may have been pitched as a what if, but we were going with, with Hulk and Vince at WrestleMania. That was as close to being etched in stone as you could get. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the raw 
at the very beginning of February. I think it's February 3rd in Washington, D.C. And this is one of the more memorable Raws, at least for me, during this era, because we see Eric Bischoff trying to find Steve Austin. What are your memories of shooting that? This is probably something you would have been involved in, right? Yeah, I had an absolute blast. Eric and I flew down to Bandera, Texas, which is where Steve lives. Steve had his ranch in Bandera. And we wanted it to be authentic, and we wanted to go to the actual places that Steve hung out and have Bischoff looking for Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, basically a scavenger hunt, trying to find Stone Cold. So we flew down. I think we flew into San Antonio and headed out early in the morning. Uh, Eric, Bubba Dean, who was our cameraman, and myself, and had an absolute blast. And this was the first time that Eric and Steve had spoken and or gotten together since the infamous uh, federal uh, FedEx where Eric fired Steve by FedEx. So it was, uh, it was an absolute blast. I mean, it was just a lot of fun and, It was an all-day deal where we ended up getting – I think we got – we made it back to San Antonio with roughly 15 minutes to get to the airport to make our flights. It's pretty fun stuff. And on this same show, you see Randy Orton and Batista attack Tommy Dreamer in the ring while Triple H and Rick are watching. And Triple H cuts a promo making lots of reference to the word evolution. So you can tell that that's coming. You also see backstage, Goldust suggests that he and Booker T go their separate ways if they lose their tag team title match against William Regal and Lance Storm. Um, And eventually, on that same show, we see Orton and Batista attack Goldust and throw him into the electrical box that electrocutes him. And we've talked a little bit about that on our Goldust show. How would you describe Goldust after the electrocution? Yeah, uh, uh... He he developed Tourette's syndrome. I didn't know you could get, I didn't know you could get that from being thrown into an electrical box, but yeah, well, this I think this was the the first example of that. It's a textbook stage, uh, case study. Yes. On that same raw, we see Scott Steiner beat Chris Jericho to earn a world title match against Triple H at No Way Out, and then after the show goes off the air, I guess we should remind you the storyline is Bischoff is trying to sign. Steve Austin in an effort to finally earn Vince's approval. Well, of course they go off the air and it doesn't happen, but Steve Austin does appear in front of the live crowd. But after they go off the air and he has a blast doing all kinds of stunners and beers and with everybody, when do you remember that becoming a big part of the show? To me, this feels like the beginning of something that he's going to carry on for what feels like years, right? Yeah, well, some nights it felt like he had been out there for years. He would stay out there so long drinking beer and just celebrating with everybody until there were only 10 people left in the arena. But uh this was about the time that, that we started that because later on, it, it, when we hit WrestleMania 18, was it 18, 19, whatever it was in Seattle, and Steve, his ring days were over, and we made Steve the general manager, and Steve would be a big part of the show. Steve's only appearance out in the crowd would be at, at the end of the night where Steve could come out and uh, chase the heel away and have some beers and entertain the crowd. 
So that became, yeah, that became his, his gimmick and that ritual every single night. And it, it could get long some nights. Oh my God, it could get long. Around the same time, Raven was released, but Raven has uh, famously sued the company several times since. What are your memories of uh, Raven and the WWE in this run, and why don't you think it worked out? I think if Raven had done the Raven gimmick in the WWE first uh, without doing it in ECW, I think he might have had a hell of a run. I really and truly do. Um I love that gimmick. I thought that that was something that he and Heyman did really, really well, getting Scotty over in the Raven gimmick. Um, it worked. It was great for ECW. And this time around, I, I think that Scott's working days, or at least his best working days, were behind him. And he had become ingrained in that character, not allowing it to grow beyond what it had already become, that yeah, he really didn't want to change and he saw it almost, it became one dimensional to him. But you go back and I think if we had had the opportunity to debut the character the way that Heyman debuted the character on ECW, him sitting on the, uh, the swing set and the poetry and all that crap, I think that, that the Raven gimmick would have gotten over huge in the WWF. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, I enjoyed the character, and I, w- I wish we would have been able to get more out of it here. I wish we didn't have to give you this sad news, too. Kurt Henning passed away on February 10th, 2003. We did a full show on his life and career. It's available in the archives at somethingtowrestle.com. But I, I want to talk about what if a little more here, because Steve Austin was all over ESPN, their their television network, the radio network, and the website. He's in Bristol uh, to film a commercial with Dan Patrick, who's one of the big hosts there. And they wind up getting him on several shows. He's a big star at the time. And this is sort of way before coach put together a deal with you guys. And it feels like over the years, ESPN almost played hokey pokey with the WWF. How do you remember this one, this particular run coming together for you guys? I think that by this time, I'm trying to think if Dick Glover was still there. I know you like that name, Dick Glover. Um, I think Hokey Pokey is a tremendous way to put it because they would get warm to us, and they always, when we would hit a hot point, they always wanted to use us to attract more attention to ESPN. Um, but then when it came time to, hey, help us out by putting our guys in to attract attention to us on the outside, they weren't as warm and receptive to that. And that was usually the relationship with ESPN. And I want to say that it was that way probably until the, these latter years where they've used Coachman when he was with ESPN. And it was a lot better relationship, in my opinion, as far as the back and forth. Let's talk about Sting. He appeared on the program Get in the Ring and said he was willing to, quote, entertain WWE's offers for a full-time schedule. And he did say he'd like to wrestle Triple H, Steve Austin, and The Undertaker because he worked with all of them before they became household names. What can you tell us about negotiations with Sting here in 2003? Uh, I know Sting. I could call him. I like his songs. Um, you know, this was Johnny Ace, and this was uh, an attempt, you know, 
for John to show, hey, I can land, I can land a big star and allow me to go out and uh, negotiate with Sting. We had had several negotiations over the years dating back to the late 1980s with Sting. And every, every few years, those conversations would come up again and again. So this was just nothing new, but it was a new person in, involved in the negotiations and a new guy reaching out in Johnny Ace. And, you know, the same thing happened. I don't know that Steve was really looking to have a full-time schedule, and that was something that Vince was interested in. Vince wanted – he didn't want a part-timer. He wanted somebody that was going to come in full-time. If Sting was going to come in, he wanted him to make house shows and work the same schedule as everybody else. So it just kind of broke down at that point, and I don't know that uh, – I don't know if it was money or what. I think usually it, it came down to that schedule. Let's talk about Bite This again. It's such a big part of uh, the story we're trying to tell for this episode. On February 7th, uh, Hulk Hogan appears on the show, which is obviously a big deal. And he sort of gives the impression that he's politicking for a WrestleMania match. He says, quote, I mean, Hogan Austin is huge. It's huge for the fans. It's a huge WrestleMania moment. It's a huge money match. It's Hogan Austin, man. It's huge. And Steve Austin needs to come back to this business, man, because Steve Austin and the fans are too tight to leave it the way he left it. And with his personal stuff behind him, I'm not sure what's going on with him and Deborah, but with her personal stuff behind him or whatever, he's, uh, he's stable with his personal thing. He needs to get back in the ring and kick some ass. Now, I don't know much about Steve Austin, Bruce, but I know if you're saying this shit, he ain't fucking working with you. Oh, bless Hulk's little heart. You know, Hulk's trying to do what he thinks, you know, is the right thing. And, and sometimes he just puts his foot in his mouth instead of moving forward and let's plug what you're there to plug. I think he tries to work his own angle sometimes and thinks he's saying the right thing. And it's just better to leave it alone than say anything. And, and Hulk would often find himself in that situation a lot of times. Go plug what you're there to plug. Move on. Um, the bad thing about it was, was where we were as far as storylines and what we wanted to do with Steve. We wanted to keep that a very linear storyline with Steve coming back and the whole Eric deal and getting to rock and Steve at WrestleMania. We didn't want people thinking about Hulk and Steve. Didn't want any of that stuff out there. So don't mention it. Sometimes he can't help himself. Let's talk about that briefly for a minute. We know that we're going to get Rock and Hulk Hogan here on this No Way Out 2003 show that we're we're working towards right now. Was there ever any consideration to trying to put that match as a WrestleMania rematch, given how successful it was? Or was that never considered Hulk Rock 2 at WrestleMania 19? No, we were using, we were using it to get the buy rate here for no way out and wanting to do something new with, with Hulk and McMahon. The, you know, in our thinking, we were thinking that, that Hogan McMahon was as big as, as Austin McMahon just a few years later. In 19, or I'm sorry, in 2003, doesn't it feel like the biggest money match, even though it might be a few years too late? Is Steve Austin Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 19? Given how successful 
Rock Hogan was at WrestleMania 18. Was that ever considered? And if, and if so, who poo pooed it? If I can freestyle, given the professional rivalry between Rock and Austin, it feels like something that Austin may not have been super excited about because Rock had just beat him the year prior. Was it ever discussed for 19? Hogan, Austin. No, because we want, no, because it, it was, we were going to get Rock the win here. Steve had beaten Rock in all prior WrestleManias, and this was Rock's win. So that's where we were going with it. Okay, thanks for all the insight, Tony. Well, no, I mean, that, you're asking, was, there was, that wasn't a discussion. That wasn't something that we were looking to do. We were looking to get to Rock and Austin. That's where we wanted to get at WrestleMania. And there was the, the Hogan and McMahon story to us was a bigger story because we had a lot more to do with that. We had more places to go with that. And it wasn't something, because people sit there with a book and they look at it and go, oh, well, why didn't they do this? Well, there's a lot of things you could have done. We weren't discussing them because we had a direction that we wanted to go in. You don't think Hogan-Austin at WrestleMania would have been one of the bigger matches in WrestleMania history? No doubt about it. It never lined up right. And at this at this time, for everything that we were doing, I felt that uh Hogan and McMahon was bigger than Austin and Hogan, and that Austin and Rock was bigger than Austin and Hogan for everybody involved. Let's go to February 6th. This is a big show here on SmackDown. It's from Philadelphia, and I'm pretty excited about it because the show opens with a shart, uh, a shart, a shot. Uh, I guess it was a shart of a large gift. I was going to just say that depends on your outlook hanging over the ring. And, uh, you may remember this is the box that Paul Heyman calls to be placed in the ring and the box reads to undertaker from big show. And Heyman says his client is at the show and wants to send the undertaker another peace offering. So taker walks out and finally opens the door to the gift box. And then out comes brother love who cuts a promo until he's choke slammed by the undertaker. And we know how Jim Cornette feels about this coming out of a box. How did this box come to be? And, uh, this is probably one of your last opportunities to be on TV as brother love until this year, right? It, it, as a matter of fact, it was my last appearance on TV in our live role until this year. So, um, God, I don't remember if it was Heyman or Brian that had suggested, well, we're in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Wouldn't it be cool if Big Show gave Undertaker his, his former manager, Brother Love, you know, and Brother Love could talk sense into the Big Show. I don't want to say I hated it because I didn't hate it, but I didn't want to do it. Just, I'm one of those, those old, those old, uh, old fartsy old timers that like, I did my last gig. I've done my last gig. You know, uh, I don't want to do another one. So, I wasn't really happy about it, but at the same time, yeah, okay, you guys want me to do it, and I'll do it. The scariest thing was, though, riding in that friggin' box, hoisted up by a crane above the ring and going over the people, because the box itself was flimsy as hell. 
but in, in the middle of it was a, uh, like a crane seat deal that you could hold on to and be sturdy. But it was just, I'm terrified of heights. And, uh, it was just scary being in that friggin' box, especially knowing that, uh, Ellis was at the, at the helm of my safety. Ellis, of course, is, uh, someone who's been with the company a long time and I'm sure he listens and that's why you took a shot. Uh, exactly. I like to give Ellis a hard time because he's damn near <laughs> killed me. I don't know how many times. Um, so when you go up in that box, <laughs> boy, you could never mind. Um, were you, it was dark in that box. <laughs> let me tell you. And it was a tight fit too. I'm sure. Let me ask. No, it was cavernous, man. <laughs> oh it seemed to go on forever. You know, once you got in there, you couldn't see anything. There were, there were streams of light in the distance, but you weren't sure exactly where the hell you were at any given time inside that box. And it was cold too, but I was sweaty. Um, are you in the box suspended above the ring when, when doors open and fans start to come in or did they bring you down right before they go on the air and hoist you up? Fuck no. Um, no, I went in right, right before the segment. There was no way in hell they were putting me up there. Yeah. That would have been a rough day. Yeah. That, that wasn't happening. I, I had enough stroke at that time. Now, yeah. 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 You go rid the younger kids. I ain't going up there. Not happening. Something else memorable from this same SmackDown is we see Sean O'Hare in the back convince Brian Kendrick to streak through the arena like the guy in the Nike commercial. What do you remember about that skit? Well, it was. It was, uh, Sean O'Hare's idea and Sean wanted to be kind of like a Svengali that he could talk people into doing things and he, he would, it would be a mind fuck that Sean could get people to do things they didn't want to do. And, um, that, that was the genesis of it at the time, something that we were just trying to do. And, and I think we had either we were going to use, uh, Brian for an Undertaker bit. I don't know if we had done it yet or not, but uh, Brian was always game for that kind of stuff. On this same episode of SmackDown, here's sort of a fun John Cena-Brock Lesnar line here. John Cena challenges Lesnar to a match the following week, and he raps, and he says, You want the next big thing? Let me take my pants off. It feels like Vince McMahon would have fucking loved that line. Am I right? <laughs> I like it when he says, Those nuts! Isn't that great? He's got those peanuts, and he gives them to the guy. Vince never didn't get the D's nuts. I didn't get it. I had to have it explained to me, but it was, you know. Who smartened you up about D's nuts? Cena, because I said, hey, I, I don't get it. You throw a pack of peanuts at him. Because, yeah, snack on D's nuts. Yay. And, okay. So I never really smartened Vince up in here. I love it, he's got uh, what if he did cashews one night? <laughs> hey, hey, you want some cashews? Oh, we should change that. God damn it. There's oh just a traveling nut house and I'm the head cashew. <laughs> Eat my salted in the shell over here. And my sweet little tender filbert. Oh my mm. God. Those this are my nuts, pal. This is the best. <sighs> okay. I'm going to try to keep it together here. Uh, this is a, an interesting era for the company. Uh, on this same episode of Raw, or the, the next episode of Raw, 
uh, February 10th, we're in LA. Vince calls Bischoff and Morley to the ring and, um, he's trying to debate who's getting fired. And Bischoff even brings two HLA girls as a present for Vince, but Vince wants no part of it and sends them backstage. So Vince fires Bischoff and then lets the crowd sing what? Na 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 na. Hey hey hey. Goodbye. I love that song. I've always been curious about this because there's a skit on this raw where backstage Stacy tells Tess that she lined him up with some promotional appearances for GGW. I assume that's Girls Gone Wild, which was mentioned a few times on Raw over the years. What was the uh, Francis McMahon relationship like? How does Girls Gone Wild get a plug here? Uh, it was actually through Eric Bischoff, and Eric and Joe Francis had done some business together, and they were getting ready to do a Girls Gone Wild pay-per-view. Eric was the executive producer of the pay-per-view, and Eric... Uh, asked WWF if uh, they wanted to help with the production. So it became a joint production of Girls Gone Wild and BHE Productions and TV and the WWE. Allegedly, there was a match on this Raw between Chris Jericho and Jeff Hardy, and a porn producer wrote into Wade Keller that a couple of Jill Kelly contract girls, once they understood what the HLA chants were, started making out with each other. And this distracts the crowd, of course, and pisses off Jericho, who's upset that they're taking the fans out of the match. Do you remember porn stars making out in the crowd on Raw, and why the fuck didn't you shoot it? Uh, We probably didn't know. And we probably just thought there was a commotion going on in the crowd taken away from the match. I'm sitting, you know, in the backstage, and if it's not on the monitor, I'm not seeing it. So I had no idea. I think that, you know, the, the production people, all they know at that point is there's commotion going on. Don't shoot the crowd because you don't want to take away from the match. Towards the end of Raw, it looks like Vince is going to come to the ring and introduce the new GM, but JR and Bischoff stop him and announce that Austin is indeed going to appear at the pay-per-view. So Vince reinstates Ross and Bischoff refuses to join the Kiss My Ass Club. So Vince has booked Austin versus Bischoff at the pay-per-view. So Austin's return to the WWE, his pay-per-view return, is against Eric fucking Bischoff. Wade Keller would also report, quote, after... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Karate man Eric Bischoff. Sorry. Karate man Eric Bischoff. Damn right. Get it right. He's not three-time Black Belt Hall of Fame. Just saying. Three times. That'd be me. Not Eric. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was listening to you talk about karate. <laughs> All right. I know when I start talking, you're going to motherfucker me again, so I'm just waiting on it. No, I'm not. Go okay. ahead. Uh, Keller reported, after just two matches on TNA pay-per-views this month, WWE has recognized the marketing potential in the remarkable Tenacious Z, who is the first high-profile example of a pro wrestler with a full leg amputation. The 19-year-old Tenacious Z showed during his TNA matches that he's more than a novelty act, After just nine months of training, he appears to be a natural of the ring, disability aside. WWE is also sending out feelers for Steve Chamberlain, who is a one-legged wrestler training with Steve Kern in Florida. There's no word yet on how WWE intends to utilize Z, who is sure to gain WWE mainstream publicity wherever he wrestles if the marketing is handled properly. 
This is a famous story of how it almost didn't happen. How did the signing of Zach Gowan, who listens to the show, by the way, come about? Paul Heyman brought Zach Gowan to our attention and brought in a tape from the TNA pay-per-view. And look at this young man here. And Paul had, Paul had everything. Paul had his name, his phone number. He lived in Michigan. Um, we must get him. This is a human interest story that people will love. So we're watching it and fell in love with him. Showed him to Vince. I must have the one-legged little bastard. So we called John Laurinaitis and we said, <laughs> Johnny, there's a kid on TNA. His name is Zach Gowan. He wrestles as Tenacious Z. He is a one-legged wrestler. He's 19 years old. Lives in Michigan. Here's his phone number. We want to bring him to TV. Okay. We get to TV, and the first person that greets us, or I beg your pardon, I'm sorry, I'm skipping over, I'm skipping over the the best part, is we're flying to TV, and John informs us, oh, hey, I got the one-legged wrestler, but, uh, yeah, he's not 19. He's like 30-something. No, pretty sure he's 19 years old, man. He just started working. Oh, no, no, he, he looks pretty good. And and when he works, you can't even tell that he doesn't have a leg. Well, he works without the prosthetic. I mean, he works on one leg. No, no, he works with his prosthetic on. He looks pretty good, but he's, he's kind of older. I think we're going to have to cut off the... The ponytail in the back and just go with the bald look. He's got a full head of hair, John. No, no, it's bald, kind of like, got a Mongol gimmick. Johnny, um, hired the wrong one-legged wrestler. And that's where the, the Steve Chamberlain thing from Florida came in. Johnny didn't didn't take the number we had or the name we had or anything else. He started calling around looking for a one-legged wrestler who Steve Kern had knew of in Florida. Hang on. Hypothetically, what might that phone call sound like when he's making cold calls about the one-legged wrestler? Hey, uh, y'all got any one-legged guys over there? It could work. Uh, preferably uh, 19. 36 will do. That's close enough. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, we'll bring him into TV. I'll sign him for a big deal. So, <coughs> sorry. Um, we, we get to the building and we're greeted by, uh, my good, close, dear personal friend, John Layfield. He's like, could y'all found a more miserable one legged goddamn restaurant on the face of the earth? What? What are you talking about, man? He goes, yeah, it's this guy's over there. He bitching about everything. He's in the pool. Said y'all hired him and then fired him before he even made one shot. And we're like, oh my God. Johnny hired the wrong one-legged wrestler. So we got on the horn and found Zach and got Zach to TV and Did Zach used call? the actual number that was supplied to him. So 
Zach was able to hop on a plane and get right to the building? Yeah, he jumped right on it. Um, let's talk about D'Lo Brown. Keller reports, D'Lo Brown was informed by WWE officials that the company will be exercising an out clause in his contract, meaning he'll be a free agent soon. WWE has not prohibited recently released workers from working somewhere else. So don't be surprised if Brown goes to work for NWA TNA in the coming weeks. A couple of years ago, right after Vince left for WCW and touted D'Lo as one of wrestling's future superstars, Brown made a big fuss in the locker room saying he was going to leave the WWF for WCW once his contract expired. And he made it known he was looking forward to being reunited with Russo. What he didn't know is that he actually had another year remaining on his deal and he couldn't make the jump. But he found himself in the WWE doghouse because of his comments and wound up being sent to Ohio Valley for a lengthy period. Only recently was he called up to the active roster after spending months just working on heat. And what makes his release somewhat surprising is that Triple H was high on him, or at least he was a few months ago. When WWE was holding color commentator auditions a while back, Triple H pretty much pulled Brown from contention by telling the office they should use his wrestling talents on Raw instead. If D'Lo receives the standard severance package, he can be expected to be paid roughly $25,000 in a lump sum payoff, which is now what WWE considers payment for 90 days work. So set the record straight here, Bruce, because the rumor and innuendo is you're the guy who fired him. I fired him? I didn't fire him. Okay. What happened? I fired him in TNA. I let him go on TNA, but uh, I didn't fire him here. Uh, just ask Godfather. Every time I see Godfather, he's like, hey, Bruce, man, why'd you fire D-Lo? Um, but same thing. It was cost-cutting at that time. But with D-Lo at this point in his career, Vince didn't see a whole lot left in him and liked him in the nation. Uh, I thought that D-Lo always had more legs, and I thought that D-Lo could have contributed a lot more. Vince didn't think so. I don't know that... uh that Johnny and Jr. were high on him, but he was a hell of a hand. And it just gets time when it's cost-cutting time. Contracts come up. Do you want to renew them? Do you have anything for them in the future that Vince can sink his teeth in? If you don't, then they're let go. And that's just the cold, harsh realities of business. He got caught in the cold, harsh realities. I do have to laugh at $25,000 $25, being the severance package for guys. That's just... Make believe, yeah. That's just, yeah, that's just somebody making shit up and printing it as fact again. Well, here's the deal. One guy probably got 25, but not everybody does because everybody's on different contract amounts. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Chat me up about the Vince Russo, I'm leaving story. I'd never heard that before. I, You know what? This is the first time that I've heard it. Uh, Russo was a big fan of D'Lo Brown. He was a big fan of D'Lo when he was in the Nation of Domination, and we all were. Um. D'Lo came up, man, through the ranks, and he was, when he was originally in the Nation of Domination, he was just a guy to take bumps. But he was able in his work to go beyond that, and I thought become a star. But I'd never heard that he was going to WCW or that he was bragging, telling people that he was going to WCW or anything like that. There's rumor and innuendo out there. That these days, D'Lo is, uh, like a bouncer or security at a gentleman's club. Can you confirm or deny that? Well, I can deny it because he used to be. 
He was thought, uh, until recently. I just think that's hilarious that all these years his gimmick was the chest protector, and now he literally is he's protecting chest. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, makes me tickled. I, I think he's doing something else uh, out in Vegas right now. Boy, that protecting was... protecting something else. Okay, I don't want to ask a lot of questions there, just in case. It's legal in uh, it's legal in Vegas. Boy, he... ooh, 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 ooh. they got like stores you can go into and by, buy stuff. By the way, this this should not be on the show, but you know, fuck it, we'll leave it in. I had a conversation with someone today who invited us to dinner tomorrow, and I said, uh, we've already got one lined up, but you can come with us. And I told that person where it was. He was quick to remind me exactly what we were near or not near. And uh, we've got our weekend scouted concert. Let me say that. So let's talk about your favorite wrestler in developmental, Nova. Wade Keller reports, Nova wasn't the only developmental wrestler ordered by management to get a haircut. The word going around is that management sent the word that all of the male developmental wrestlers need haircuts, including Lance Cade, who looks ridiculously young now that he's complied with the office edict. Why all the haircut demands? Of course, wrestling fans online just sort of jump to conclusions and say, oh, Triple H doesn't want all the wrestlers to have long hair. Pull out that chapstick, Bruce. Well, that's the silliest shit I've ever heard, and I'll tell you exactly where the short hair mandate came from. Uh, Jim felt that everybody looked the same with the long hair. So in order to make everybody not look the same with long hair, he had everybody cut their hair so they looked the same with short hair. Now, here was my – and and I <laughs> I fucking – I mean, I, I did blow a gasket, and I did cut a promo on – at one of the meetings just saying – you know, it's so much fucking easier to cut someone's hair than it is to get them to grow it out. So let's wait until we have something for these guys before you put put out and say, well, everybody should cut their hair. Oh, God damn, everybody got long hair. Well, y'all are trying to look like a man instead of a, a woman. Or, or you want to look like The Undertaker, Triple H, with the long hair. Try to look like a man, like Cowboy Bill Watts and Danny Hodge. Sorry, I got to fuck with JR. Um, I love him, but hey. And that was, that was the message that was received. Everybody's got to cut their hair. And I was like, because, again, you can shape it once you know what the hell you're going to do with them. But if you wanted a guy with long hair, then how the fuck do they grow it out? And there was a period where everybody in developmental, you could line them up. And it was other than the color of their hair and maybe more muscularity, maybe not. They all looked the same. There was no individuality amongst them. And, and that, that abs, oh God, it absolutely drove me nuts. And, and that was something I did not agree with. And I will speak publicly about just, I, I hated it. And it, no, it had nothing. Triple H and, and those guys were uh, undertaker. I would have to say they were just as pissed off at the mandate for the same reasons that like, you can't grow hair, man. <laughs> you can always cut it. So leave it long if it's long and cut it if you got something for them, but don't cut it. And then if you got an idea, you want a long-haired freak, uh, you're screwed. 
February 13th, the day before Valentine's Day on SmackDown, we see Kurt Angle give Stephanie McMahon a rose on Valentine's Day, and he moves in for a kiss, but Brock Lesnar interrupts, and we finally agree to an Angle-Lesnar match next week, and Stephanie books a six-man tag for the pay-per-view, so Angle takes the rose back. Uh, Rey Mysterio beat Matt Hardy on this show, and this is kind of fun for me. Afterwards, Matt blamed the loss on his attempting to drop weight so he can wrestle for the cruiserweight title against Billy Kidman, which is good stuff. We also see Joe Francis appear on TV, uh, and he's inviting Tori Wilson to his pay-per-view. And there's rumors that you guys are going to start having different divas appear on these pay-per-views as a way to draw. What would Tori Wilson or some of the other divas, how would they have been compensated for this? Obviously, they're not... You know, drop top titty tipping time. But what was the plan? Drop top titty tipping time. Yep. We got one person listening who will think that's hilarious and he knows who he is. Is it does does he is is Don't last he, name kid? <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Um drop top <laughs> titty What what was it again? I wanted to slip it in one time. That's what she said. Talk to me about. Talk to me one more time. Give me the phrase one more time. Okay. It's clear that it wasn't going to be drop top titty tipping time for Tori Wilson here on the show, but she's agreeing to appear on the pay-per-view. Yeah. It's going to be a shirt next week at BrucePritchard.com. And hypothetically, if it is, eventually Bruce will call and personally thank you for the lovely Eventually. Of a t-shirt. Yeah, that's my new thing for Tony, and I feel like we're selling so many damn t-shirts you've got to be behind, too. Chat me up. Tori Wilson's the draw for the thing, but it's not drop-top titty-tipping time. So, what? how's she compensated here? The, they have a budget for talent. They had Snoop Dogg. They had other talent, so it's just a budget for talent they were paid and agreed upon beforehand. Does But if WWE is putting him on TV and promoting one of their stars as appearing on a pay-per-view, they've got to be participating financially. What was WWE's cut of these young girls showing their chesticles? I don't know that WWE got a huge cut. They got paid for the production. They went in, they went in as the production company and they brought their camera people. They brought their truck and everything else about it. But I don't know how much of the promotion and how much that they participate in the actual pay per view itself. I'm sure they got something, but I really don't have any clue what the hell they got. It's amazing to me that that has not been talked about more with all the people who come after WWE for this or that or whatever. Being a part of Girls Gone Wild feels like it would be something that everybody would be hitting on, but they're not. I guess nobody has a problem with drop top titty tipping time. Um, let's talk a little bit. <laughs> that tickles you, doesn't drop it? Drop top titty tucking tittle time. <laughs> Fiddlefuck.com. Go check out Fiddlefuck.com and get your drop top titty tucking time shirt. Hypothetically speaking, how do you spell Fiddlefuck? Uh, F-I-D-D-L-E-F-U-C-K. That would be Fiddlefuck. Dot com. I encourage everyone to go to fiddlefuck.com, and it'll be even a lot more fun in about a week or two. Just saying. Dave, Dave, Dave. I can't believe that's a real thing. I just typed it in. It's a, it's a real website. <laughs> <laughs> you have, uh, you, you're, you have learned, kind sir. Have I, have I outdone myself with that one? I have mean, I just like, I, I don't I did. know. I feel like I've created a monster now. Oh yeah. Big uh, time. <laughs> Uh, Heyman presents. Title, titty, titty, tipping time. Are you alright? 
I think so. It will be assured. I can already tell. February 13th, we're still in that same SmackDown. Heyman presents The Undertaker with another gift from Big Show. And this time, Canyon comes out of the box, dressed and singing like Boy George, but is quickly attacked by The Undertaker. Dude, this does not age well. You're having him come out of a box. It's got to be some symbolism that somebody's poking fun at there. And then he's singing like Boy George. Whose idea was this? How receptive was he? Does anybody not look around and say, fuck, dude, this isn't cool? It was his idea. Canyon did Boy George. And that's who he was supposed to be when he came out. It was it was Canyon's whole idea. Canyon did this whole Boy George routine. And it was his idea to come out of the box and serenade Undertaker with Boy George. Hypothetically, if Canyon was here today, God rest his soul, and he's on the roster and he pitches that same angle today, is there any chance it gets greenlit? God damn it, pal. If you only did the drop top titty tuck your time <laughs> and gave him a t-shirt. Okay, here we go. Uh, the main gotta, of- I, I wrote it down. I got to get it in my head what it's going to be now, but still. Uh, Brock Lesnar beats John Cena on this show with an F5. And afterwards, Lesnar calls out Angle. Uh, and then he F5 Cena's knee into the ring post. Um, all three members of Team Angle are out here. You know, Haas, Benjamin, the whole deal. And, um, Lesnar places the WWE title on laid out angle because Lesnar's running them all off. Even back then, let's get to raw February 17th. This is sort of an interesting show here too. We've got lots of fun stuff happening and and we're headed towards no way out 2003. We got Booker T telling Terry that Goldust hasn't been the same since he was electrocuted and triple H and his faction crack jokes about Goldust. Oh, sorry. What do you think about this in hindsight again? It feels like this is an interesting time. You got hot lesbian action. You got Boy George. You got bra and panty matches. We're making fun of a guy for having Tourette's. A lot of weird stuff going on in 03 here. No one made fun of him. It was a poor uh, uh, ailment that he had. Um, Yeah, Triple H was cracking jokes. Well, it was funny. Um, (laughs) Yeah, everything you just everything you just laid out. Is none of would uh, Rick Flair was cracking jokes too. I'm sure he was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was none of that shit would fly today. I love that. That's your comeback for any time I, I mock. Uh, but it is now. Yeah. Well, it always was, but you just couldn't say it. And now I guess since it's out there, you can. So in this same show, we see Jericho paying tribute to Kurt and he swats his chewing gum after cutting a promo. I thought that was pretty cool, man. I saw that the other day. You sort of doing research for this. It was a nice little subtle tribute to the man, was it not? Absolutely. And, you know, it, it was terrible circumstances uh, surrounding Kurt's death, but he added an awful lot to this business, man, and uh, he was one of the greatest ever. I can't wait to talk about this. Backstage, Chief Morley impersonates Jim Ross while leading Bischoff through a karate workout. And then later in the show, Eric Bischoff beat Jim Ross in a no-holds-barred match. And in the match, Morley comes in for a two-on-one attack and grabs a fucking cinder block, which Eric breaks on Jim's head. This is real life. Uh, JR does a blade job but still gets up, and this is after he had a fucking cinder block broken on his head. First of all, JR blading... um, 
a no holds barred match with JR and Eric Bischoff, the cinder block. Is Vince McMahon in gorilla position chubbing up over this? This is the most Vince McMahon skit in history, is it not? Oh my God. Well, I, I got several problems with it. A karate man and a karate kick and sidekick should put you out in and of itself. Then to add the cinder block to it, I think he should be dead. Alright. So for JR to get up over that, after that, that, that was, I about just, and oh my god. He's an announcer. He's an announcer and we've broken a fucking cinder block over his head. No, kicked a fucking cinder block through his head. <laughs> Goddamn karate man kicked him. Right up. He's right up. He didn't get right up, but he got up. The fact that he got up. Fuck me running. And you know, you know what Vince's rationale is? What? Nobody believes that karate bullshit. <laughs> God damn it, Bruce. It was just a karate kick. Oh Let me God. kick you in the fucking head and goddamn laying down there. Curb stomp your ass. Much less with a fucking cinder block. It's from Oklahoma. They're tougher than you karate pussies. The cinder block. Oh, my God. You know what's funny? When we were in the WWE warehouse, they still have one of those. The uh, the, the gimmick cinder blocks. That one, that one wasn't gimmicked. That was that was a shoot karate kick and a shoot goddamn cinder block. Oh, was, yeah. I meant the ones that didn't make air. They had. The oh, you mean those other gimmick. ones that they had to use for where the, where, big show and stuff? Hypothetically, where do they get cinder blocks for Raw? Uh, cinder blocks are us. Keller reports in the March 1st Torch that Vince McMahon decided last week to remove Paul Heyman from his position as lead writer of SmackDown, a position he held since last summer. He's being replaced by Bruce Pritchard and Dave Lagana, both of whom had been working Ooh. under Paul Heyman in recent months. No official reason has been made publicly regarding the move, which shifts Heyman to a less defined role as a, quote, consultant to both Raw and SmackDown. We talked about this in our Paul Heyman show. Anything you'd like to add here, though? I do find it interesting that uh, the wording is, he's being replaced by both Bruce Pritchard and Dave Lagana, both of whom had been working under Heyman in recent months. And I thought when I read that, boy, Bruce is going to have a rebuttal to the idea that he was working under Heyman. Well, I've done a lot of things. Working under Paul Heyman ain't one of them. That's it. Um, I wonder who, I wonder who, uh, where Dave or Wade or whoever got that information from. Hmm, interesting, sir. Wade Keller continued. Here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Bruce Pritchard, other than one time, one short time away from the company, has been with the WWE dating back to the early 90s when he hosted a weekly TV segment as the Brother Love character. He has scripted TV shows before and is regarded as especially reliable at fitting in the various segments proposed by Vince McMahon into a solid framework that is well-paced. He is also considered a consummate yes-man who attempts to be nothing more than an extension of McMahon who does McMahon's dirty work and doesn't challenge him, but instead reaffirms his ideas. So first of all, you weren't there since the early 90s. You've been there since 87. Um... You were away for more than a short time. It was more than a year. Uh, were you 
able to be reliable at fitting in the various segments proposed by Vince McMahon into a solid framework that was well-paced. Would you agree with that? Uh, considering that I wrote a lot of those segments, I wrote television. Uh, would you also consider yourself a consummate yes-man who attempts to be an extension of McMahon, essentially doing Vince McMahon's dirty work, reaffirming his ideas, and not challenging him? I think if anyone were to ask Vince McMahon that, I think he would uh, answer in the negative. But it's not the first time. I, I, am someone, I am someone that probably disagreed with Vince more than anybody. And when I disagreed with Vince, we would work it out. But when Vince decided on a direction, I supported it 100%. So if you call that a yes man, then I was a yes man. But I fought him. I gave my opinion. And then when the boss and the owner of the company tells you this is what we're going to do after having all the information, yes, I supported him. So this comes from Keller's all of his years of experience in the company. Yes. And running a company and being a part of a corporation. Yes. Okay. He was there. You just missed him. Okay. Um. Edge, it comes out, is going to have to have neck surgery, and uh, it's the spinal cord fusion to fuse the six and C6 and C7 vertebrae. It's the same surgery we all know Lita, Benoit, Austin all had. And Lloyd Youngblood is the, the surgeon, and I guess he did them for all these guys. We talked he about did. this injury on our Edge show, but at this point, Edge is certainly on the rise, and he sort of has his knees clipped out from under him again with another injury, right? Yeah, it, it really was. It, it hurt because you're looking for him to break out of the pack and you're looking for big things from him. And now with this kind of news, you know that the least amount of time he's going to be out is a year and you wonder what the hell you're going to get when you get him back. So it was disappointing. Um, disappointing for us. Can't even imagine what the hell it was for him. But yeah, it sucked and timing was the shits. No doubt about it. Uh, Steve Austin was being pretty critical, according to the torch. He's been telling friends that if he had his way, the creative team would be eliminated. Austin believes it should only take one person to format the shows and relay the basics to the agents and wrestlers. And he would like the agents to go over the basic points. The wrestler should hit in their promos and then leave it up to the talent to fill in the gaps with their wording. You've probably heard this a lot from Steve over the years, and we still hear it on his podcast these days. Did you have conversations with him during this era about his frustrations with creative and not being allowed to just sort of be himself? Sure, and a lot of and a lot of that is true. The the hitch in that is is that you do it does take more than one person and you do need to have people to bounce ideas off of. And when people are left to their own devices, a lot of times everything starts to sound the same. Unfortunately, when it's all written by one person and or approved by one person, things start to sound the same, too. But the idea is the more ideas that you can have coming into the pot can help the creative process. I agree and disagree with that on both sides of it because you, you do need more people. And if you leave people to their own devices without the proper production and them being produced, not always the best. Not everybody's as good as Steve is. Can you confirm the rumor that Nathan Jones missed a house show because he was detained at the airport because he told security he had an explosive in his shoes? I remember something stupid like that. He, he thought, yeah, he goes, oh, what's the big deal? In Australia, that's no big deal. 
I guess he, I guess he missed the news about the shoe bomber. Does anybody have a conversation with him when he does something fucking stupid like that? Oh, absolutely. I, I remember specifically Vince having a conversation with him on this kind of shit. And it just was, oh God, very frustrating. Very frustrating. It comes out that Steve Blackman, let's, let's be reminded here. We're in February. But the torch is just now reporting that Steve Blackman's contract expired in October and he had a problem with recurring migraines. And obviously that means you can't take bumps or it's going to trigger a situation there. But he also had developed a stomach condition. So he's unable to take painkillers, which created a bit of a dilemma. So when his contract expires, WWE chooses not to renew it. And they didn't release him early despite his inability to work. Uh, they just honored the contract and just didn't renew him. What do you remember about Steve Blackman's career coming to an end here? It was unfortunate and the, you know, the only thing to do at that point, it was through no fault of Steve and it was an unfortunate ailment is pay him out for his contract and quietly let him go on his way. And Steve was going to go and I believe he lives outside of uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in that area. He has martial arts school and Steve just wanted to go back and do that and, and carry on. So it wasn't a whole lot to it other than, you know what? He's not going to be able to work. He's not going to be able to do this long term and, and move on. And as usual, the, the dirt sheets are right on top of the factual things. Well, let's talk about uh, Scott Steiner briefly. We've already covered this in our Scott Steiner episode, but it's relevant because of what we're about to talk about. According to the Torch, Scott Steiner's physical condition is so bad that management has openly abandoned the idea of him being a consistent top-tier singles wrestler. They're now trying to figure out what to do with him for the duration of his multi-year contract. He'll probably end up in a tag team situation where he can be protected from having to work so much. He may be turned heel also since fan reaction for him has been sour thus far. His behavior behind the scenes, though, has been stellar. He's had no outbursts and has been a joy to work with, albeit a bit quiet. Does Keller have that nailed? Actually, for the most part, yeah. You know, it was we were looking to be able to utilize Scott and felt that if we put him in a tag team, wouldn't have to rely on him working as much. You still got the star power of him. But uh, put him in a tag team, and he doesn't have to carry the whole load. All right. The go-home edition of SmackDown is February 20th. It's going down in Indianapolis, and we start the show with The Rock cutting a promo, soaking up the crowd's negative reaction. Uh, He's clearly a heel here, and he says the crowd has told him that they've chosen to boo him, so he's going to react accordingly. And later, we see a couple of security guards standing in front of the Rock's dressing room, and I believe they refuse to let Funaki inside, right, Bruce? Indeed. I like that I don't even have to cue you up. You just know where we're going. Uh, this is a fun episode here because we see a Los Guerreros skit where they're in Beverly Hills. Los Guerreros. And they steal a new mother's jewelry in her baby's bottle, which is good stuff. This is also the episode where we see Michael Cole conduct a sit-down interview with Nathan Jones, who's teasing a feud with The Undertaker and then chokes Michael Cole. Speaking of The Undertaker, though, we see him come to the ring, and this time he has two presents from Big Show waiting for him. The first contains a puppy, and Taker kicks in the second box, only to have Big Show attack him from behind. 
Jim Cornette's not here at this time. How did this series of boxes come to be? Who was who was campaigning for this? Motherfucker, they come out of a box or over, motherfucker. Except for brother love. Fuck him. Whose idea was it, Bruce? Motherfucker. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Whose idea was what? The boxes and the gifts? Or doing this fucking podcast, any of that. Um it was Paul Heyman's. Paul had the idea of, you know, ingratiating himself with Undertaker. And if he besieged him with gifts that the Undertaker would see the softer side and lure him in for the big show attack. I think Heyman and Heyman is just a New York version of Cornette. Speaking of things we can't do on TV anymore, Nydia with Jamie Noble beat Tori Wilson in a paddle on a pole match. Thanks to Don Marie's interference. Hypothetically, if Jamie Noble was to hype up Nydia about this paddle on a pole match, what might that sound like? Baby, you gotta get up that pole when you get that paddle. You gotta get that paddle, get in and just spank her, honey. Until it's bright red. You know the way I like it, baby. You know, bright red when you touch it, it gets kind of white and everything. And you spank it just right. It gets all bright red and shiny and all. And spank her, spank her until she's all good and ready to go. And sweaty. <laughs> oh, God. Backstage, a couple of security guards refuse to let Hulk Hogan inside Rock's room. So Hogan comes to the ring for a promo and is quickly joined by the Rock, who then sort of takes over and does most of the talking and starts ripping on Hulk Hogan. And then eventually Rock teases he's only trying to entertain the fans and has nothing but respect for Hogan. So Rock offers his hand to Hogan, only to spit in his face. Clearly, the Rock is angling to make sure everybody knows this time he's the heel. Right, Bruce? Yes, and, you know, this was a funny thing, and I, I was talking to somebody this week about it. You know, Rock was trying so hard, no matter what they did, they they were cheering him, and that was one of the ideas to put him against Hulk, because especially there in Canada, Montreal, Hulk was going to be viewed as the traditional babyface. And Vince came up with, with the line, you know, they said, well, well, we'll shit on the people. You know, we'll, we'll shit on the audience, and then they'll, they'll boot it. Only goddamn problem is... He shits on the people, but he's shitting ice cream, and they love it. So no matter what Rock did during this period, you know he was shitting ice cream, and they wanted they wanted more. Well, we're about two hours into the show. Let's actually talk about our topic. No way out, two thousand three. I hope by now you figured out that. Whenever we cover a pay-per-view, it really becomes like a state of the company for the month leading up to the show. We try to cover the four weeks prior to and sometimes the week after, but you get like a four-week run here of everything and everybody in the company. But let's get to the actual pay-per-view. Coachman and Lawler are being introduced here because JR is not there because he had a fucking cinder block broken over his head. Hypothetically, wouldn't it have been fun if uh, JR was trying to make the call but had cinder block pieces in his head? Oh, that's fresh. Hang on while I get this. What the hell is this? It's a tag from Cinder Bucks R Us. Well, fuck. I don't know how. I like the way you combine JR and Michael Hayes. Um, yeah, they kind of go together. First, and Tommy Rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a Tommy Rich we haven't heard before? Hey, somebody say something about fire up. Hey, guys. 
Everybody get your shit on. Mandy got a pee-pee. Come on, baby. He's going right back there and pee-pee. Don't worry about the pee-pee already on the seat. Just a little paper there. Wipe pee-pee off there. It'll be all right. Match number one. Could have been a main event anywhere in the country. Chris Jericho beats Jeff Hardy in about 13 minutes. And he wins with a tap out from the walls of Jericho. Wade Keller would call it a good opener. Three stars. And when I got to tell you, when I watched this back, Bruce, I couldn't help but think about the progress that Chris Jericho had enjoyed because, uh, just this past week, we covered Super Brawl 1998 on Tony Schiavone's show. And that's when Jericho was really embracing, you know, calling people funny names and doing his hair crazy. And he's sort of coming into his own as this crazy heel character. And to see him in February of 98 there, and here he is five years later, but along the way, even though he's in the opening match, he's beat The Rock and Steve Austin in the same night to become the first undisputed champion. He's went into a WrestleMania main event, or at least the last match on the card, as world champion. He's accomplished a lot, but here he is again back at the start of the show. Does that say anything about Jericho's trajectory in the company to this point or more about just the, the roster depth in 2003? Well, absolutely. They trusted him enough to open up the show with a bang and give him a great match. And, you know, Jericho is a big listener of this show, by the way. Really? And Jericho, yes, he listens every single week. And here's a cheap plug. Fozzie is actually going to be in Houston at the Scout Bar on March 1st. And Chris is going to be in town. I'm going to go on out and see uh, Chris and see Fozzie at the Scout Bar down in Clear Lake. Uh, it's going to be an absolute blast. That was uh, Chris's cheap plug there because I got a lot of respect for him, and I like Chris. But as far as Chris came in that short time, he came even further to what he was doing just in the last two years in the WWE because, I mean, he's continued to grow and continued to reinvent himself and reinvent his character. In this match, watching both of these guys with the false finishes that weren't just false finishes – they were logical. The crowd was into it. They were real. And I thought it was absolutely, I thought it was a great match. Um, there wasn't a bad match on this card. No, there's really not. And it tells you what a, what a kick ass card it is. If that's your first match, I know we cover a lot of pay-per-views here and some people just listen to these podcasts and roll tide. We appreciate that, but you should probably go watch this pay-per-view. This is next level stuff. Uh, after this the- match, we go back. St- go ahead. Well, hang on, hang on. You forgot the, the most important part in, in a lot of respects because this was Montreal and it had been, this was the first time that Shawn Michaels, who was, was back on the roster, was in Montreal since the Montreal screw job. And we had Jericho wouldn't release the walls of Jericho on Jeff Hardy. He was saved by Christian. Um, and you have, I mean, uh, join, join them, but you have Shawn Michaels come out and fight off Christian and Chris Jericho and got a huge, I mean, blew the roof off the place pop for a guy that however many years ago is he, you screwed Brett, you screwed Brett. And now they can't cheer him enough. And it was a great cop. And it was, and, and it was, it was done by design. To get the heels out there, to get the heels, somebody for Jer—I mean for Sean to fight back, 
and the Montreal audience came right with it, and all was forgiven. They didn't even think about it. They were happy as shit to see Sean. Backstage, we got Kurt Angle uh, telling Shelton Benjamin and Charlie Haas that Canada is filled with bitter and jealous people with no Olympic heroes of their own. And if they chant you suck, it's because they just rather be French. And uh, I'll be damned if the three of us team up for the first time and lose to a walking gorilla and two Canucks. So trying to get the cheap heat here in Canada. Next up, we've got a fun tag match we talked about earlier. William Regal and Lance Storm take on Rob Van Dam and Kane. And uh, they retain their WWE tag team titles. And it was a good tag match, according to Wade Keller. But uh, the end comes when Kane mistakenly chokeslams RVD when his mask gets twisted around. And, of course, RVD's upset afterwards. Two and a quarter stars. i got to say, I enjoyed this match more than I probably thought I would when I read it on paper. Uh, so did I, and I thought it was a hell of a match. Not always, you know, the biggest fan of, of Lance Storm, and that's probably due to, you know, the personality and, and, and or lack of on promos. But, man, you can't take anything away from Lance Storm's work. And same thing with Regal. All four guys busted their ass in there. And it was an extremely enjoyable match. And the beautiful thing about it was, is it told a simple story. Right. And the little thing with Kane and RVD and the mask leading to the finish that eventually got to Kane unmasking, um, just watching it back going, God, man, there was some really good nuanced stuff that we did throughout it. Uh, next up, we've got Josh Matthews interviewing Matt Hardy about his upcoming match. And he's talking about how he's lost 10 pounds in two weeks. And then he sees his brother Jeff a few feet away, walks over, and lectures him about how he should have remained a Mattitude follower. And, of course, Jeff slaps Matt. What do you remember about this part of the show, Bruce? Well, the best part about it is, especially when you watch it in 2018 and you go back and you see the confrontation between Matt Hardy and Jeff Hardy and you see a bit of broken brilliance as Matt was talking to Jeff about forgetting about his attitude and goes, you use your imagination in the promo. And when I heard that around, uh, Wound it back, listened to it again, and that was the first time I ever remember. I mean, now, hindsight being 2020, that was the debut of Broken Matt Hardy. Because of the way he said imagination? Imagine, uh, he said, imagination. And it was just (laughs) hilarious to me listening to it now. It was imagination, drop, top, kitty, tucking time. What's wrong with you? All right, next up, we get wow. Matt Hardy pinning Kidman in nine and a half minutes to capture the WWE Cruiserweight title. Keller would write, good match, but not a show stealer by any means. More interfered near the end, two and a quarter stars. What did you think of Matt Hardy and Billy Kidman here? I thought it was good. I, I thought, you know, again, it was a story of a heavyweight and Matt Hardy and obviously be, being bigger than Kidman, uh, winning that light heavyweight title. And I, it told a good story. So I enjoyed it. I, I thought that the match was damn good. I feel like I forgot to mention here that they do switch commentators and you guys didn't do this all the time, but you do it here and you switch away from Lawler and Coachman. And now we've got Michael Cole and Taz, right? Exactly. That would be uh, Taz with one Z because they were the SmackDown team. As opposed to Taz with two Zs? 
Yes. I thought he had two Zs. Oh, wait, no, shit, you're right. Actually, it was Taz with two Zs as opposed to Taz with one Z. This was Taz with two Zs. Taz with one Z. It was Z, old two Z Taz. But one Z Taz will tear your fucking head off. But two Z Taz make a pun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, backstage, we see Edge has been found. I would spit one out, but I don't. <laughs> I got don't. nothing. That's happened a lot on this show. Backstage, Edge is found knocked out on the floor, and a number of people check on him, including Chris Benoit. And Taz and Cole are at ringside, and they say they'll update the viewers on his condition later. And then they sneak in a quick plug for WrestleMania. This is clearly just a way to get Edge off of TV since he's got to have surgery, right? Exactly. And he's there, so we want people to see that he's there and know that he was, by God, ready to fight, but them damn dastardly bastards attacked him in the back. Undertaker beats Big Show next. They go about 14 and a half minutes, and Big Show taps out. Wade would write, some very slow spots at times, but the finishing sequences were good. A-Train interferes in the end, but Taker still wins by submission, a star and a quarter. What do you remember about this match? It was to tell a story, and it was just to get us to the next step. You know, originally, the idea was for Undertaker and Nathan Jones to work at WrestleMania when we realized that there was no way that Nathan was going to be ready for Taker at WrestleMania. We shifted to get to the big show here. And then the idea was, well, God, you know, he's worked with big show before this. We're working with big show now. Uh, what do you do special for, for WrestleMania? And Taker wanted to work with, uh, a train and he liked Albert a lot. So he had suggested a train and Vince just fell. The only way to make that match plausible was to have uh, the, the handicap match with A-Train and Big Show against Taker, and that it was an ends to a means is all it was. How did Big Show and Undertaker like work together? Like, What was their relationship like? You know, they always got along, and, and sometimes you know, big guys don't like working with other big guys, but um, Big Show was an unselfish guy and an undertaker. They got along pretty damn good. Big show had a lot of respect for the undertaker. So they worked well together. And I think that, uh, especially as years went on, they both got smarter and, and better. I think that their matches were even better as time went on. Uh, the WWE website identified that big show had a back problem and it was three bulging discs and one herniated disc. And he tells the website that his back problems started when he took a series of suplexes from Brock Lesnar late the prior year. And he says he was in so much pain that when he returned from the holiday break, he could barely walk and couldn't stand upright. Uh, and they also say that now he's trying to see a chiropractor every day so he could make it through his match, um, with Lesnar at the Royal rumble. And he's been resting on his back all day prior to No Way Out, which is why he didn't appear on SmackDown until the go-home week. And he says he's lost 15 pounds and he's hoping to lose another 50, quote, not because JR is on my ass, but because I want it for my health. And to show off this new and improved physique, he's wearing tights he used to wear in WCW at this pay-per-view because he says, quote, Vince likes to see more of me. The more I show, the more impressive human being I am. What do you remember about the back injury, uh, him trying to look more impressive for Vince, Vince wanting to see more of him? What can you tell us about any of this? 
Well, I remember the back injury, and that was the toll of working with Brock Lesnar every single night, and Brock suplexing the hell out of him and slamming him. And for a for a giant man, that's an awful lot of wear and tear on the body. And Big Show wasn't used to it because Big Show, being a giant, isn't bumping all the time, and he wanted to show everybody that he could bump. And Brock doing those damn suplexes every night just it eventually took its toll. Um, we can see by the show, when you watch the show, Big Show didn't wear the old tights, or did he? I thought he was wearing pants. or No, he wore pants on the run-in. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, Big Show had his ups and downs with his weight. I, I wish that he had gotten as serious at that time as he has now, because right now some bitch is ripped and looks incredible. Um, if he had looked like that, during this time, there would have been no stopping him. What do you mean? You think he would have been the tippy-top guy? Uh, the drop-top tippy-top guy. I like it. With abs. Uh, next up, we see uh, Edge being stretched out of the arena in a neck brace as Stephanie McMahon is checking on him. And then we see Morley and Bischoff discussing how they're going to approach the match with Steve Austin. Bischoff is sort of cocky here. And then Vince walks into the room and tells Bischoff he's impressed with his karate demonstration. Uh, and now he sees it as a fair one-on-one match. And anyone who interferes will be fired on the spot. So, of course, Bischoff doesn't look quite so cocky. Uh, a fun little story, though. Next up, we've got Brock Lesnar working with Chris Benoit to take on Team Angle. And, of course, Brock and Chris get the win when Haas taps out to Benoit's crippler crossface in about 13 and a half minutes. Meltzer would write, the first angle Lesnar action was underplayed by the announcers. The quality you'd expect from these five, three and a quarter stars. You look at just the wrestling talent in that ring with Benjamin, Haas, Angle, Benoit, Lesnar. That might be the most wrestling talent ever in a ring at the same time. Well, I, you know, watching the match, going back and looking at it, what my takeaway from it was we were building to Brock and Angle. And watching the match, you, you get lost in it because it was so damn good. And that build made you want that match all that much more. And it, it built everybody. It made Team Angle mean something. It made Benoit mean something. But you wanted Brock so badly in this match to, to beat Angle and to be able to be that, you know, to be that guy. But it was, if you're a wrestling purist, and you like them 18-star matches from the Tokyo Dome, this is the match for you. Um, next up, we've got Triple H working with Scott Steiner. Of course, Triple H gets the win, 13 minutes and two seconds. He retains the WWE title, and Keller writes, better than last month's match, but still short of an average match. Steiner is just so limited in what he can do. Hunter used the title belt to KO Steiner for the pin. Of course, we talked about this match a lot on our Steiner episode, but remind everybody again why they're booked again after that Rumble match. Well, because we had already we didn't know what we had until the Rumble, and we had already committed to this match here at No Way Out, so we were kind of we were in it and wanted to go ahead and get this match done and get it out of the way. Uh, took four guys and a belt to, to finally put Steiner down, trying to to give him an out and just move on from there. It was just, you know, cut bait. You know, lots of rumor and innuendo that um, Triple H sort of held Steiner down here. 
I think watching the match makes you reconsider that, don't you? Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing about it, though, the match wasn't that bad. And it was, was it the Scott Steiner of 1990? No, it wasn't. But it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as I remembered. And I, you know, watching the match over again, I'm sitting there going, oh, okay. I'll accept that. So do you think that maybe politics are what held him back? If, I mean, if you didn't hate the match. No, I'm saying that before that, it was knowing that you're not going to be able to, we had a lot of gaga around that match to make it work. And so we were able to make something out of it, but you had Flair involved all the way through the match. Then you had to have Batista and Orton and everybody come out with the belt. So we had to paint it up with Gaga, which made it not that bad. So when you watch it back, you go, okay, you know, at least we salvaged it. That's all. Let's talk about what's next, man, because uh, we're still building towards um – the Eric Bischoff match. And we see a bunch of the wrestlers sitting backstage, mocking Bischoff as he's approaching the entrance tunnel. And then we see a video that sort of recaps the whole situation. When all of a sudden Jr. walks out to a huge ovation and he says he came to see someone get their ass kicked. This is a great story. Bischoff walks to the ring and says, Steve Austin can settle this with him without violence. Austin comes out to the music and, of course, Bischoff tries to pitch, let's let bygones be bygones. Of course, Austin tackles him to start the match, and he beats him in about four and a half minutes, and he just beat him up, gave him a couple of stunners and pinned him, and then gives him a couple of more stunners. But this is probably something that these guys had to have a talk about before they went through the curtain. Right, Bruce? They had to have a talk about the match? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> you know, it was... It was an ass whooping and it was something, you know, with Steve's return and Eric's got one job there and Eric's job was the same thing that I did for all those years. Go out and take a hell of an ass whooping. And that's exactly what he did. It was the, the crowd was so freaking happy to see Steve back and he didn't have, you didn't have a better antagonist than Eric Bischoff. So. For him to get that cherry and him to just beat the living shit out of Bischoff was great, and especially with that Montreal crowd that ate it up. Uh, absolutely. And the crowd was ready for it, and they were ready for it because they knew the backstory. And the backstory, of course, is the firing that we touched on earlier. And, of course, Austin, in years since, it says he now understands why he was fired, but it just bothered him that Bischoff did it over the phone and not to his face. And when he finally sees Eric... In a WWE event, he goes up to him and says something like, Hey man, can I talk to you for a minute? So they could talk privately. And then he says, Hey, a lot of people probably think there's heat between me and you. And you probably think so too. And I was mad at you for a long time for firing me the way you did, but I think you're doing a great job. And what happened happened. That's in the past. As far as I'm concerned, if it's all right with you, let's wipe the slate clean and start from zero and put all that other crap behind us. I got no animosity towards you and I'm not mad at you. And Austin would write, and you could see a sea of relief wash over him. Eric answered, that would be great with me, Steve. And we shook hands. So as you lead into this, there's got to be a lot of people wondering, hey, how's this going to go? And Austin would write, I'm just telling you right now, Eric, I'm stiff. I haven't kicked or punched anybody in seven months, so my timing might be off. But I'm not intentionally going to try and mess you up or hurt you. And he said, okay, I'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be okay. 
And Austin said in the match, he caught him with a couple of really good stiff shots, but it was his first time back and he needed it to look vicious and look good. But quote, I certainly wasn't trying to take advantage of the guy. When you're watching this, I assume you're on headset and gorilla. I was probably watching it at gorilla or somewhere because uh, at that time, I don't think I was doing gorilla, but I probably watched it there. Uh, chat me up about what this sort of, what the reception is like backstage. I mean, are people really gathered around the monitor curious about how this is going to go because they know the past or did everybody know at this point, it's just business as usual. At this point, everybody knew it was business as usual and that it was, you know, it's a work and we're all there to do business. You know, the meeting that Steve talks about actually took place in Bandera, Texas. And I think it was like the silver dollar ballroom or something like that, but it was one of the first places that we shot. And, and there was a lot of anticipation of people wondering how is Steve going to react seeing Eric and, and not knowing. And that's pretty much just how it went down. And it was, we're beyond it. One of the best things that ever happened to Steve was being fired from WCW. So if he had not been fired, don't know that we would have had the Attitude Era in Stone Cold. So it was a good thing. But it was, I remember watching it, and I remember everybody else's reaction going, well, that's a little cemento, that's a little snug. How aware were you guys at this point? I know we're going to talk about this more in the future, but at this point... What were the plans for Steve Austin? I mean, he's been sort of on the sidelines for a while. He's back here, you know, working with Bischoff. We know we're headed to WrestleMania. What were the concerns about his physical health, though, here? Well, at this point, we we didn't really know, and we were hoping that Steve was going to be back for the long haul. The initial plan was to get him to WrestleMania with The Rock, and from there to try and create something with him and Bischoff, very similar because Vince was mainly on SmackDown at the time, create something with Steve and Bischoff on the Raw brand to continue that rivalry. And off the top of my head, I really don't remember uh, who we had Steve programmed with beyond WrestleMania because it was kind of like I talk about those blackout things when something that drastic changed, you forget everything that you had coming up. Um, and we had no idea of any, you know, physical things that were going to cause him not to work beyond WrestleMania. And the cards just landed where they did. Uh, let's go to their main event. The rock beats Hulk Hogan in 12 minutes and 10 seconds. And Wade writes, Hogan's looked slower than last year. They didn't attempt to do much, but they told the story they needed to tell without embarrassing themselves due to the lack of conditioning. Uh, two stars. What was the relationship like with Hulk and rock at this point? It was good, and I think that, you know, the first time, definitely, I think Rock kind of looked at, at Hulk as a as a mentor and a little bit as a father figure the first time that they met. And by now, you know, Rock is, is moving on to bigger and better things, but I think he still had a lot of respect for Hulk and vice versa, that Hulk saw Rock as a younger version of himself in, in a lot of ways. Um, they got along great and did what the, you know, did what they needed to do to do business. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Hulk Hogan's politics because it does feel a little bit to me 
like Hogan may have been trying to campaign for a win considering he lost at WrestleMania. Was there some sort of debate or discussion about the finish? No, there wasn't because we were going with Vince and Hulk and that's where we wanted to go. And the idea was for Vince to screw, screw Hulk out of this win. And I think, you know, a lot of times so easy to play to all that bullshit online and the dirt sheet writers to say, Oh yeah, Hulk is politicking and, and to put that thought right there in people's heads. But it wasn't because we were going with Vince and Hulk at mania where Hulk knew he was going over and it was a way to, to continue it. The other thing is we had rock and Austin. So rock sure as hell didn't make any sense for him to lose there. And it didn't make any sense for Hulk to lose there because then he's not overcoming anything. So there was never really any debate. He had the story. He knew where he was going and that was part of the story. Um, have you heard the story or did you know the story that rock told recently about how, when he was a kid, he caught Hulk Hogan's headband at Madison square garden. And then the rock was backstage all excited that he ha- he caught the Hulkster's headband and Hogan asked for it back because that was his last one. <laughs> did you ever hear that? No, I, 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 no, I didn't. And I, and I can't imagine, I don't know. I, I can't imagine Hulk asking for it back, but hey, it makes for a great story. Um, what was Rock's, like, was Rock visibly excited about working with Hogan again here? I mean, I know he was, he had to be excited to work with him at WrestleMania. It's a big deal. But at this point, is this just business as usual? Has some of, uh, the excitement as a fan of working with Hulk Hogan dissipated? You know, I think so. I think that he was excited about it, but it was business as usual for him because he was going on to Austin. This was, this was another step in that story. I tell you what he was excited about. He was excited about being able to be a heel and he was excited about, you know, having fun and being able to go out on his promos and insult people and, and have fun with that. So, uh, in that regard, he looked at it as a fun part to be a heel, but it was just another stepping stone to get to WrestleMania, another point in the career. And he was moving on pretty much from there. But it was, you know, Montreal, it was a good way to, you know, it was cheap heat. It was an easy finish having Vince and the referees screw Hogan and all that stuff. It, it was easy, and it was logical to get us where we wanted for Mania. You know, Vince McMahon coming down to sort of pick the bones and strut out there with the suit and then rip off the shirt and then have the silly customized Hulkamania shirt. Um, it's one of the most hilarious things I think Vince McMahon's ever done. I couldn't help but laugh out loud watching him do this. And I can only imagine what that might sound like if, if he were talking to himself during the pose down. God damn, give him that most muscular. You know I look better than you, don't you, Terry? Look at me. Look at the veins popping. You're very vascular, boss. Uh, I missed the spot uh, on the back of your arm there where I didn't get some oil. Maybe it came off when you took your shirt off. I'll get it when you get back here. Don't touch me, you mother. But, yeah, they probably had a little fun with it. And I think Vince enjoyed uh, any, any time that he could go out there, especially when he would train and Vince would train extra hard. Any time that he knew that shirt was coming off. 
Yeah, I mean, it's obvious right here, too. Me. Um, Hulk Hogan told the WWE website after this match, my back has been so damn bad. Five discs. They tried to burn it in California to get it to slide back in, which didn't work. Tonight, from about 4 p.m. on, I iced it every 20 minutes. The ice is the only thing that would take the pain out. As soon as I got in the ring, taking little short bumps from Rock's punches, I was already testing my back. I'm sure it'll be weird tomorrow, but right now I'm so happy because it doesn't hurt, and I've only had one beer. I'm amazed how it feels. It might have just been that I needed to get in the ring and take a couple of bumps. Might have to just break up some of that calcium. Who knows? Everybody's saying WrestleMania this, WrestleMania that, McMahon, Hogan. Without telling Vince, if I would have made it through this match tonight, there would have been no WrestleMania. But I can now live to fight another day. So I'm happy I got through this. It's unreal. Did you guys know, I mean, how much of this is just Hogan working, brother? And how much of this is legitimate? Hogan's in bad shape, and we're just trying to limp along to WrestleMania. You know, I think if if Hulk had been in a wheelchair, Hulk would have wheeled himself to the ring to have that match with Vince. Sure. There would have been nothing. So, um, no, no one knew that he was in in that much pain or that there was ever even any consideration of not having that match. And, yeah, Hulk's, man, Hulk's back is, is screwed up really bad. I, I mean, he's gone through so many operations. You know, now, here we are, 2018. So I can only imagine at that time it was probably the first time, really, that he had been back working on a regular basis again, and, yeah, it was probably hurting him bad. But uh, I don't think there was anything that was going to stop him from going to WrestleMania at all. All right, so that's going to wrap up No Way Out 2003. We've got some questions for you, and we want to encourage you to ask questions for next week's episode. Set your calendars, boys and girls. March 2nd at noon, it's all about the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. We're going to cover his career from 93, 94, and 95 what might we talk about next week, Bruce? Well, we're going to talk about the evolution of the click and how it became one of the most powerful just entities in the wrestling business, going from Vince McMahon saying that that little bastard will never have my world championship to becoming the man. So there you go. Uh, go ahead and submit your questions right now on Facebook or Twitter. We're going to have a post up by the time you hear this, and you'll be able to ask questions about Shawn Michaels on at Pritchard Show on Twitter, or, of course, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And the following week, on March the 9th, we're going to be covering Saturday night's main event 15. Let's run down the card real fast. This was actually taped on March 7th, 1988, but it aired on March 12th, and you're going to hear it on March the 9th. We'll cover Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake, taking on Greg the Hammer Valentine with Jimmy Hart, Hulk Hogan is working with Harley Race here with Bobby Heenan in Harley's Corner. We've also got Ted DiBiase, seconded by Virgil and Andre the Giant, as they take on Randy Savage with Miss Elizabeth on the outside. We've also got the Islanders with Haku and Tama and Bobby Heenan, of course, taking on the Killer Bees, Jim Brunzel and B. Brian Blair. And that goes two out of three falls, because that's what we needed. And in the main event, or I guess last, We've got One Man Gang with Slick taking on Ken Patera. This is essentially the go-home show for WrestleMania 4. 
which we are going to be covering later in March. So to get you in the mood, we're going to cover this card from Nashville, Tennessee. It's Saturday night's main event, episode number 15. Set your calendars. That's coming to you on March the 9th. Bruce, are you ready for some questions for No Way Out 2003? Dig it. Craig Evans wants to know, why was Rock Hogan not saved for a bigger show? Okay, what bigger show do you want? Again, you got to have something headline a damn pay-per-view, and they all can't be WrestleMania main events. It was the right time, the right show to get where we needed to be for WrestleMania. Uh, Anthony Walker wants to know, what did Vince think of Matt Hardy version one? <laughs> Vince didn't get it. He didn't understand that whole Internet thing, but... Another example of Vince, you know, Michael Hayes was really pushing for Matt and the fact that Matt brought this idea to him, allowing Matt to just use his creative juices with this thing. Drew Murphy wants to know, why do you think Charlie Haas didn't have more of a singles run? I think probably the lack of promo skills with Charlie and Charlie would get tongue tied from time to time and he was best using a, a, it's a tag team. I thought he and Shelton were great. Corey Lawson wants to know, why did Hulk Hogan during this era not use real American and not use his traditional look from his first WWE run? Well, Hulk was a lot more comfortable in the long tights at this time. By this time, he just liked the long tights look better, and it was different. You know, the, every character has an evolution. Um, the other thing that he liked was the Jimi Hendrix uh, voodoo child, and what we played was a, a ripoff of that, but... It was preference, just to be different. Nathan Caesar wants to know, what happened to William Regal during the tag match? He seemed legit unconscious for a moment after Kane's scoop slam. On the slam, Regal didn't tuck his head, and he had a stinger for a minute. So he kind of had to get his wits about him a little bit, and you wouldn't see that happen today, I don't think. If that had happened in a match today, I think they would have stopped the match immediately. Mike Norton wants to know, this card is so stacked top to bottom, it has to be the most loaded talent roster in history. Can you think of any other years that can match it? Boy, it was there, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's really hard to think of one. During this time, we had everybody. And then you add, add on to that Piper in the mix after WrestleMania and Goldberg and all this other stuff happening. It was a hot time. Joey wants to know, did Scott ever impress the locker room with his math skills? Can't say that he ever did. Ricky Morton's mullet wants to know, did you like Undertaker's choke submissions? He seemed to end matches with such an anticlimactic way. I didn't like it. I liked his tombstone, but Vince was getting away from the tombstone, didn't like the pile drivers, and this was Taker's way of just adding more shit to his repertoire. Peter wants to know, do you believe Steiner's animosity towards Triple H is genuine, or is this just his way of keeping his notoriety alive? P.S. We know Triple H is the most wonderful person to grace the planet Earth. I don't know. You'd have to ask Scott Steiner that. I think that you know Scott has animosity towards a lot of people, and it's probably genuine, but you'd have to ask him. Danny wants to know, how often did Vince McMahon actually name a wrestling maneuver while commentating a match, or did he just not know the names? Oh, what a maneuver. Oh, my. Uh-oh. Aren't those names? Aaron wants to know, if Steiner had a better showing here against Triple H, what would the plans have been for him? Well, I think by that time that we were already kind of resigned to doing a tag team with him and, and just trying to ease up his workload to get more longevity out of him. It is kind of funny because, you know, he's brought in 
to what seems like it's going to be a major push. And he's not even on WrestleMania, which I'm sure we'll cover another time. Uh, Brad wants to know, it really seemed like Hunter was threatened by ECW and WCW wrestlers coming in. Was this because he could never get to the level of Austin or Rock? He was threatened by ECW and WCW wrestlers coming in. I don't know that he was necessarily threatened by those guys coming in. So I think that's just a matter of opinion. And uh, as far as getting to the level of Austin Rock, again, that can be argued too, I think, in the no. wrestling genre. Did he ever get to the level outside of the business as Austin Rock? No. I don't think anybody is going to get to the level of The Rock other than John Cena anytime soon. Motherfucker, are you arguing that Triple H got to The Rock Austin level in the business? In the wrestling business? Yeah. Yes, longevity. Look at look at how long Triple H has been on top and working versus how long that Austin was and how long Rock was. Rock didn't wrestle 10 years. God damn. You're carrying the water today. For longevity, yes, in the wrestling business. Did he receive the notoriety outside of the wrestling business? No, he didn't. Not even close. I don't know what to say right now. Uh, Pedro wants to know, during this period, WWE was using a lot of new metal music, including Evanescence's Bring Me to Life theme for this pay-per-view. What was Vince's take on this kind of music? <laughs> uh, as, long as, as long as they got promotion for it, I think he was fine with it for the most part. Vince liked that heavy metal. Vince liked ACDC and were pretend to like it. The, the wake me up inside, that was the only thing I remember from the uh, opening theme here at WrestleMania, not at WrestleMania, no way out. And it was kind of funny to me, actually. Johnny wants to know what was Austin like the day of the show? Was he nervous as to how the crowd will react to him after the long break? No, he wasn't. Uh, you know, we, we'd had, I think, you know, with somebody at that level, I think they're more anticipating getting out there and feeling the juice more than anything. John wants to know if Austin hadn't walked out, were there any plans to move him to SmackDown and get one last WWE title run? You know, we talked about moving Steve to SmackDown. That was something that Vince just wasn't up for. Vince, like Steve, felt that Steve was a raw guy. Wanted to keep him there. Andy wants to know, besides personality and mic skills, golly, what a burial. Holding Lance Storm back. Did Vince not like his in-ring work, too? Man, that's a really shitty way to ask it. Let me ask it this way. Ring work. What did Vince think of Lance's in-ring work? Vince liked Lance's in-ring work. Okay. Worker. Josh wants to know, do you think we'll ever see another WWE Hall of Fame with only one inductee, like The Undertaker, like when Andre went in? It could be presented with the boys, former and current, getting up, paying tribute, telling stories with Taker at the center of it. Also, who should induct him? I feel like Vince has to, but if not him, who? Would it be Kane, Mick Foley, you, or someone else? Well, no, I don't think that there will ever be another uh, single inductee Hall of Fame presentation. And for me, I think the guy to induct the Undertaker is Vince, and I, I really don't know of anybody else. Obviously, if Bill Moody were alive, then I would have said Paul Bearer should be the guy to induct him. But uh, now, looking at everybody, I think that Vince is the guy. Joe wants to know, why not have Taker versus Big Show at Mania and have A-Train as the obstacle to get Big Show here? Well, because we were on the way there, it was supposed to be Nathan Jones, and we had to change midstream. 
Uh, Joshua wants to know why were Kane and RVD buried so quickly at this time, causing the need for a Steiner and Booker T as quick baby faces for triple H to run through. Kane is a monster with charisma. Why not build him up for a money match with triple H instead? I, I don't even understand the question. I mean, we were telling a story with Kane and RVD to get to Kane and, and lose the mask. So it, it's just, it was a different story. You know, you, you try to tell stories with all the talent, and everybody can't be on top. Tremendous question. I can't wait for you to sidestep. Are you ready? You got your cleats on? Sure. Patrick Ryan wants to know, did Austin apologize to the wrestlers in the back for the way he left? Was there tension with veterans like The Rock, Triple H, and Undertaker for the way Austin left, or was he instead welcomed back with open arms? I think Steve did go and talk to most people and, and talk to guys one-on-one. And for the most part, from everybody else, he was pretty much welcome back with open arms. I think people were happy to have him back. But for a lot of the guys, Steve did go talk to him one-on-one. We're out of time. Well, I'm glad, too, because uh, this weekend in Vegas, you know what it is? Is it? Wait, what's that thing again? Drop, top, titty, tucking time. Roll tight on that. Hey, something to wrestling fans. This is Doug Hendricks here with your WWE Slam Jam. We are officially on the road to WrestleMania, whatever the f***. And the first stop is No Mercy. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen when The Rock hooks up with the immortal Hulk Hogan for the first time since last year's technical masterpiece at the Skydome, I think. Dude, dude, dude. Here's the Hulkster himself. Let me tell you something, dude. Hulkamania's back, Jack. And Rock, I'm going to give you another new tattoo. And not the kind you're thinking of. A big, shiny new Hulkster tattoo, brother. That's probably not appropriate. Also on the card is a returning Stone Cold Steve Austin taking on Eric Bischoff. Here is the Rattlesnake. Hey, something, Steve. Oh, hell yeah. What the hell? Go. Oh, Eric Bischoff, you piece of trash. You fired my ass back in 1995, and I'm going to pretend it didn't work out. This match doesn't mean sh- and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. He might be a little rusty, but we're still glad to have him back. Now, I'm being told to say that the most important match of the night by a long shot is Triple H defending his title against Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner. Here's Triple H. Scott Steiner, I'm going to go out there tonight and prove that I don't need facial hair to get over. Damn it, Richard, get your nose out of my ass. To all my freaks out there, in about 15 years, I'm going to open up a Shoney's in Ackworth, Georgia, and it's going to steinerize your colon like a bundle of Sharpies. Holla! If you hear me, well, that had nothing to do with the show. Here's Scott Hall. Hey, yo. I'm not on the show. I'm just here to say if Bruce Pritchard can't take all these impressions and abuse, he should get out of the business. You see what I did there? I made and abuse sound like and abuse. Take that, Bruce. This is Michael P. I mean, Doug Hendricks. This is Doug Hendricks saying until next time, this has been your WWE Slam Jam. Do-do-do. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.